Hello everyone, welcome to this episode of FireDev, a fireside chat with people in the industry. Today, my guest is Ranulf Tees. Ranulf, thank you for coming on to the episode today. How are you? I'm fantastic. It's a pleasure to be here. Fantastic. So, you know, your name, Ranulf Tees, am I pronouncing it correctly? Yeah, that's absolutely right. But you can call me Ran. Ran. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think I will. I, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Because I feel like, you know, I'm concentrating now uh, on your first name, but I feel like in about 30 minutes, I'll, I'll probably just end up butchering it because I'm thinking about, you know, something, you know, that we're talking about. So, yeah, I'll call you Rand. Like, where is that name from? Because uh, the, it, it doesn't like, I don't recognize the name. So you're the first person I've come across with that name. It, yeah, it's, it's a rare name. Um, I actually looked it up when I was a kid and it's um, it's a Viking name, which is weird because... I'm not at all Viking. I'm Scottish Irish, um, but my parents—they um, met an explorer, a guy called Ranulf Fiennes, when I was um, before I was born. Uh, they were really impressed by him. He was the first guy to kind of walk single-handedly across Antarctica. Uh, he's climbed all the mountains. He's been across. He's—I think he's done a marathon on every continent in Ooh. seven days. Um, and they just—they really liked him, so they chose that name. Uh, the alternative—it could have been Gandalf. <laughs> <laughs> oh, was there a serious contender, Gandalf? It was, yeah, because they they, uh, they shorten it to Alfie, uh, and kind of Ranulf Alf is like at the end of it, and so Gandalf was an option, Alfred was an option, but yeah, it, it went for Ranulf, and I've heard that ever since. Okay, I mean, because, so you're saying it's a Viking name, is it like a popular name over like in Iceland, or is it not a popular name even for Vikings? Oh, I mean, I mean, like this is like old school Viking, <laughs> like kind of like yeah. a thousand <laughs> years ago. I think there were like Norman conquerors who were called it, but uh, very few other Ranulfs. I've only met, I've, I've only ever met one other in my life actually. Okay, and was he Icelandish or not? Nope he was he was also English like me. He also didn't know why he was called it, and just kind of his parents <laughs> liked the name and chose it. <laughs> you never know; his parents may have met the same guy. <laughs> uh, probably yeah you know what they probably did yeah. <laughs> yeah possibly so yeah ran you're working at survey mind right now you know you you co-founded that company do you want to talk a, a little bit about what survey mind is and you know how you fits in with the current state of ai absolutely yeah so survey mind um in a nutshell uh it's a transcription and an analysis engine and we're really focusing on market researchers uh, so people who are doing focus groups, people who are doing interviews, um, they go out, they talk to their customers, and they've just got hours after hours of audio and video, um, and it's great quality data. Uh, but one of their big problems is they have to transcribe that, getting into a text format, uh, and that's either very expensive or very long and very boring. Um, and so the state of the art in transcription uh, wasn't very good for a long time. AIs come along and there's lots of great models and we've pieced together a selection of models uh, which are really, really good for multiple people speaking at once. Uh, it will take an audio file, it will take a video file and it will transcribe it and identify the speakers inside it as well. So you'll actually get a transcript out which looks like something you could use in a research project. Uh, and that's our main thing that we're offering. Uh, and then on top of that, we've built, an anal uh, sorry. <laughs> we've built analytics engines. Uh, so using the latest kind of LLMs to really analyze the data which is inside those transcripts. Um, and the big thing that we're really working on going forward is solving the long-term memory problem, which um, a lot of AI startups are having, which is that over time, LLMs, they lose the context that they had 48,000 tokens or 96,000 tokens or however long it might be ago uh, and so if you're trying to analyze 
10 transcripts. At the moment, it's very hard to do that on a tool like ChatGPT or anything like that. You just couldn't do it. Also, for data security reasons, you couldn't do it. Um, but we're working on algorithms which essentially condense the information as much as possible, minimizing information loss so that you can actually deal with a huge amount of transcripts at once. Uh, and that's going to be very, very powerful for the industry. We're seeing actually a couple of medical research use cases for this, uh, where you can kind of have 20 different patients who've all been on a trial, all giving their experience, each of them talking for upwards of an hour to an hour and a half, two hours, um, and then analyze 20 hours worth of text data at once. Uh, and that's very, very powerful. Uh, and we're releasing that feature early next year. Very exciting place to work. Okay. Uh, look, how accurate you know, is this transcribing and, you know, summarizing? Because, you know, like you said, over the years, there's been several tools, you know, trying to do this, whether it's, you know, audio to text, text to audio, or just text to text. And, you know, like I said, it, the, the applications available have been lackluster at best. Because I, I, I remember over the years, I've looked at, you know, summarizers for just text articles? Because, you know, what you'll find, and I'm sure you've come across this, there'll be a text article that might be the equivalent of two, four, two, A4 pages if you put it onto, you know, in Word, but literally it's only 20 actual, it's only two sentences of actual information that you need. The rest is filler just to, you know, pad it out for the blog, for example. And, I've you know, I've looked at summarizers, you know, to be able to, you know, get the information that, you know, that is actually unique to that article and isn't filler. And, uh, again, I haven't found it to be that good. So how accurate is, you know, SurveyMind's application? I mean, that, that's a great question. Um, if, if we look at just the summarization, um, one of the big problems that a lot of people have when they use a tool like ChatGPT is it gives those very verbose, very long, flowery answers, which they just they don't get to the crux of what you want. Sometimes you literally just want a bullet point summary, or sometimes you just literally want that two line answer the question for me. Uh, and a lot of the things there is if it's, well, sorry, let me let me re- restart there. You've got two different issues there. One is you've got the kind of system level instruction that you want to give the LLM, make sure that it gives output in the right way. Uh, And that's a relatively easy problem to solve. Uh, And then you've got the fine tuning problem, which is let's say you're in a domain specific, uh, like I say, we're talking about medical research earlier. There's a lot of acronyms in medical research. You want to make sure that it understands the context of that. And that's a fine tuning specialist model issue. Um, And what I think both in SurveyMind, where we're building stuff which is designed for summarization of either market research data or medical data or think tank data or polling data that it both has the right system level engineering and also can be fine-tuned and something that we'd love to do and i think a lot of other companies will end up doing as we move forwards in the in the ai space is give companies the option to fine-tune their own models you have like a big base model and then let a company which has their own data fine-tune it so that they can then use it to query their own data sets, understand the context of their customers and what problems they're facing, um, understand what kind of questions their employees are likely to ask so that you can preempt it with the right level system engineering. Um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely, these are all exactly the kind of subtle issues that you really want to uh, solve when providing a product like this. So what LLM are we, you know, are you using behind the scenes? Are you using ChatGPT or something else or something custom? Uh, so I, I can't unfortunately give too much information about exactly what we're doing under the under the hood. 
because uh, it's proprietary and it's kind of kept okay. under a few NDAs. What I can kind of give is a, is the high level overview, which is we use a lot of different models, um, okay. some proprietary, some open source, uh, some API based. Um, and what I can also say is that one thing that I think in the business sense, um, a lot of companies that talk to us who are they're trying to migrate their workflows towards AI and they've just come out of 10 years of trying to migrate it towards the cloud. They're all, no one's data security departments, no one's chief data protection officers really understand the questions to be asking. It's a real, everyone uses the phrase, it's a gray area for us right now. And a lot of that comes down to the data security question. Uh, so me and my co-founder, Alex, what we're really trying to bake into our AI product offering is essentially data security from the very start. You don't want to just plug in data to anyone willy-nilly. You want to make sure that the company that's giving you a service is going to be absolutely watertight with their data controls, with their data security, not going to unfairly train models without your consent, uh, not going to store your data for a long period of time without necessity. Uh, so we're making sure we're building all this in from day one, day zero even. It was our, our kind of our original thesis is to provide that service. Um, and I think the successful companies will be the one that will be able to really persuade people and persuade people for the right reasons that they're the ones to be trusted with their AI provision because they're not going to mess around with the data they get put into the system. Yeah, that's, you know, a concern that I've heard from many people that, you know, are running companies that, you know, they don't know what that data is being used for that they might pump into a LLM like ChatGPT, you know, especially a code file, for example. Uh, and if that has some sort of proprietary algorithms, they don't know what access somebody has to it, how that can be used to inform the model. So that, I know that's one concern, you know, people have. So obviously you'll be interested to see, you know, how it pans out for everyone. And obviously it's good that SurveyMind is looking into it, uh, you know, and obviously keeping that, you know, at the forefront because that's definitely something that companies are going to be, you know, concerned about. You know, and naturally they always are because security... And and obviously, you know, data privacy as well. Absolutely. I mean, a lot of uh, a lot of the fun things to look at with ChatGPT is to try and jailbreak it and see mm. can you get it to give output that it's designed not to do. Um, and there was one you may have you may have even seen it quite recently where um, a group of researchers, I think it was at Google, where they were getting ChatGPT to essentially just repeat the same word over and over and over until it eventually diverged. And at the point of diversion, it just started regurgitating a lot of very sensitive personal information. I mean, we're talking kind of things like bank details, CVs, addresses uh, for people who just happen to kind of have their data included in the training set. Um, and I think I think a lot of the very, very big, huge large language models which are trained on data sets, on, on text corpuses, larger than the likes of, say, the Wikipedia data set or the Stack Overflow data set, when you've got kind of the, the massive data dumps which are going to include things like that because you just can't get rid of it all uh, that's a real danger if your foundational model contains things like that how on earth are you going to not make sure that it doesn't spit that out i don't know if i don't know if that's even really necessarily solvable because any amount of alignment as far as i understand it is prone to being beaten at some point it's, it's not like we can kind of hard code it it's a black box uh, so that's definitely something i think the, the people building these largest of models are going to be watching out for Oh yeah, like I feel like there'll be a market for both. You know, like the ones that 
maybe more powerful or more you know broadly accessible and maybe people don't care about the data that they're pulling in um especially if you're an individual for example but then there will be those more black box models where you know organizations sensitive data they want to make sure that like you said that data isn't just being pumped out uh because somebody tricked it you know at google so exactly the i mean i haven't come across that one but that was that that definitely sounds interesting i'm gonna you know google that one have you seen the the one where they tricked it i've tried it doesn't work anymore but they tricked it to spew out windows license keys really i know i haven't seen that one but i'm not surprised by that yeah you can't do it like if the person who you know figured out the hack at the time if it, if you asked it, you know, can you give me like Windows Eleven license keys? He would he would say, you know, I can't do that because of you know obviously, you know, security and, and you know license issues. But they figured out if they said they said that my grandmother used to read me a story uh, about Windows license keys, <laughs> effectively, and that my grandmother is no longer with us. And but I, and I yearn for hearing those stories. The, the, that's the rough gist of it. Can yep. you you know read me those stories so I can be happy? <laughs> and and then he would actually you know he created a story those window license keys that were usable in there. I, I'm not surprised by that because um, back in the early days after they just released GPT four, so I think it was around about uh, March or April time, um, you could very easily do that kind of context level tricking get it thinking it was in one state of mind and it would very easily be jailbreakable at that point um the classic one i saw and actually i managed to get it i got this to work is i got it to think i was a chemistry phd student Mm -hmm. uh, in the context of writing a dissertation and then it, it would never normally give things like the recipe for mdma but in the context of a chemistry, in the context of a PhD chemistry dissertation, it gave it straight away. Obviously, it wasn't used, but you could jailbreak it like that, and that was something which I think they've they've really, really over-engineered it. And then for a while, around about June, July, it was heavily, heavily over-aligned and was actually very hard to get useful coding output out of it. For example, um, because it was just it was it was almost too much like it was too impossible to jailbreak. And I think they've recently, they've managed to get it to a very good state where um, it is very verbose. It is very flowery, um, but it's now much harder to break. Although people are still finding novel new ways of doing it all the time. Yeah. I think that's always going to be the case, you know, with any you know, form of technology, it's like the, you know, the iPhone there, they're usually a bit harder to jailbreak these days compared to, you know, when the first, you know, was coming out. I remember, you know, having jailbreaks ready day one, pretty much, you know, for, you know, based on the development software and versions that were released, like day one, you would get a particular iPhone and it would be jailbroken or within a week or two. And now, you know, it can take a bit of time. Uh, Plus, I feel like the excitement wears off as well. Mm. You know, with like a jailbreak, uh, uh, that it gets to a point where, the hackers they just don't see the point in it anymore and yet there'll be those exploits around one it gets tougher to the you know the fascination wears off there'll probably be something else that'll be jailbreaking especially if it's a low hanging fruit that they can easily get some excitement and you know buzz around it and then you'll kind of just become solid a solid enough product with a solid enough ecosystem that 
they you know they just won't you know care about jailbreak you know so you know the software survey mind you know how long are we talking in terms of like translating you know and uh you know summarizing so so if you have an hour long video for example and you want to summarize and put that into text format you know quick summary how long does that processing take Yep. So we're um, we're aiming for 10x real time. So for an hour long video, we'd aim to get it done in six minutes. Uh, that's on a really good day that it can manage that. Um, we're it's usually around about six x to 10x. So could be anywhere between 12 minutes and six minutes. But it's still way faster than having it done by hand by humans. No. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, by hand. Plus, the beauty of it is, if you if if like the context isn't right or you want to slightly change the way it's analyzed it's a lot easier to do that versus if you are doing it manually you know you probably don't want to go over it again you know you know whereas getting a, getting an ai to do it even if it's just running in the background it's not that big of a deal you could you know have it running overnight or over lunchtime for example absolutely and actually sorry i should have been clearer there sorry it's um the actual the transcription process which spits out the transcript that's the bit that's done at like 10x speed. Uh, the summarization and the analysis, that's actually much faster. So if you've got, say, I mean, about a one hour transcript, you're looking at around about 10,000 words. Maybe it could be anywhere between kind of 5,000, 15,000 words. Uh, that could actually be done in a couple of minutes for the actual summary once you've got that text. Um, so there's there's the two different processes there. Okay. And, you know, survey mind, you know, what you know motivated you to you know found this company yeah you know, and what were you doing previous to that yeah good question so um servermind uh, it's a company that my good friend alex and i alex Sunley, uh, we co-founded together in early 2022 uh, we had a couple of ideas in ai and big data around the end of 2021 um my background is essentially I've worked in, I started working in financial services out of university, didn't enjoy it very much at all. Uh, so I moved into education. Uh, I did a two-year master's, research master's at Oxford, where I studied in the applications of AI to maths assessment. Uh, so teaching eight to 11-year-olds uh, how to learn for a computer, how to learn maths for a, for a computer, what are the right ways for them to do that, to get maximum benefit from each, essentially, minute of screen time. So how to give them feedback, how can a computer give accurate feedback, uh, how much needs to be pre-programmed by humans versus how much can be generated by a language model, uh, how much context of math do you need, how much context of the child's kind of previous academic ability do you need, etc. Um, how to make multiple choice tests that lose no information. Uh, and that was what I kind of spent five years doing. Uh, built a tutoring agency which is based around that research, um, specifically on the ways that uh, we can make sure kids take a test, understand what they don't know, understand what they don't understand what they do know, understand what they don't know, and make sure we take tailor the tutoring exactly towards what they don't understand. Um, and by by kind of mid twenty twenty one, we'd had COVID. My company had grown quite large. We had about forty tutors at that point in time, maybe even nearly fifty at one point. Um, uh, but tutoring is not something which there's no massive tutoring agencies for the reason which is that it grows very linearly it's very hard to scale uh there's a lot of cool ed tech um but actually 
by the end of 2021, I'd seen a little bit of what was to come with, at the time I thought it was actually more to do with big data than AI, um, the kind of the interplay between the two. Um, and so my friend Alex, who'd been in the civil service, uh, was a senior core researcher there, um, doing a lot of work for various departments, a lot of big stuff. Um, he and I got together in early 2022. We founded SurveyMind, and actually what we initially planned on doing, uh, this is why survey is in the name, is building AI-powered surveys. Um, so how to kind of auto-generate questions based on a prompt. We had an early algorithm which worked with an old version of GPT-3 before ChatGPT even came out, um, which could kind of take a prompt and turn it into questions and then spit that out to people straight away via email. Um, and that was a cool product, um, but it was a good business lesson, actually, which is just because you can build a cool product doesn't mean you can build a product that people are going to pay for. Um, and we really struggled to get paying users for the survey product. Uh, whereas alongside that, we've been working on this transcription engine, we've been working on the long format qual data analysis engine, um, and we started working with UCLA, the university out in Los Angeles, um, and they were loving what we were doing. Uh, they were using us for a lot of projects. Um, we had a couple of market researchers based out elsewhere in the States, a couple in Canada, a couple in Ireland. Um, and really, that was the thing which started to, we realized customers are giving us the important information here. This is what they're paying for. They want transcription. They want long format analysis. They don't want a survey engine. We're a small startup. We've got to prioritize. So we're stuck with survey in the name. Actually, we have nothing to do with surveys anymore. So that's kind of a, the, long, the long and the short of it, really. Have you thought about rebranding? It's a, Yeah, it's an ongoing discussion. And um, the trouble is we've now got a domain which has got several customers going there, logging into it. Uh, we've got in kind of the emails. We've got all our people sending us emails at the surveymind.io um, kind of domain name. So there's a little bit now of inertia we're kind of stuck with it. We really like the logo. Um, so we are probably going to change the name at some point, um, but we're waiting to work out exactly what that's going to be. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, one way is to keep the existing domain name, the existing email, but just have it, you know, all forwarded. So uh, I don't know if you call it, you know, AI Mind, for example, if you go to surveymind.com, it just, you know, you know, forwards you to AIMind.com. And obviously, if you put, you know, run off at surveymind you know dot, dot com if, if i send the email to that you just go to run off at ai mind you know dot com in the, in that, the- would, that would be the way yeah we just also we want to make sure that having changed our name we actually had an even different name before we all did the survey so it would be our third change of name yeah. uh we want to just make sure we get the right one you know yeah i mean probably a slightly more generic one where even if it, your business model changes it's not that big of a deal uh, yeah, that's one thing I've really learned is that generic names have such good power, which is you get that flexibility. Uh, we thought Survey Mind was great because it would be a bit of free advertising, free marketing. Everyone will think of surveys when they see it. But yeah, that really kind of pigeonholes you into you've got to be doing what it says on the tin. Get yeah, because otherwise, you, if you see a brand name, I've seen it before, and I just expect it to do, you know, to be related to something. And then. Mm. I see what it actually is. I'm like, like without an explanation, the, the name doesn't, you know, help. Like it, it actually hinders because I'll see and think, okay, I'm not in, I'm, I'm not in the market for, I don't know, to take survey. I'm not in the market for a survey, you know, you know, products, you know, something to do with surveys. But I might be in the market for, 
you know, summarizing an hour long video to text. Exactly. Yeah. And that would be kind of where if we can get a cool name, which is generic enough, but also gives it, it gives that kind of like, like the mind's got, I mean, DeepMind, for example, is a big kind of name in AI. Uh, we want something which kind of has a bit of cachet, uh, is cool. Um, but yeah, it doesn't pigeonhole at all. Yes, of course. So, you know, previous to all of that, you know, your experience, you worked at JP Morgan, Close Brothers Asset Management, and The Economist, you know, those sort of three are, you know, a bit more more corporate, a bit, you know, a bit different to, you know, I guess, AI tech, you know, per se. So, you know, do you want to talk about a bit about that background and, you know, why you got into that and then, you know, why that shift away from the more corporate setting yeah absolutely so i mean a lot of those were kind of whilst i was at university doing internships and then after university i went into jp morgan uh so it was very early in my career um and what i would say is that i think i'm really glad i did it uh i learned a lot from a lot of very good mentors uh it gave me a strong understanding of what corporate life would be like uh, and it also made me really realize why it wasn't the right life for me at all. Um, it's very much you go in, you're doing you're doing a job. You've got very s- narrow parameters. Uh, there's a hierarchy. It's very political. Um, uh, it's not very creative. Um, and what I really like doing is I like problem solving. I like doing a lot of different things. Uh, it's one of the things that kind of draws me into kind of coding and software architecture and AI um it's why i've always loved building things um you have an enormous amount of creativity um to do exactly what you want i mean you're you're within a lot of confines as well i mean building a startup your confines are essentially build what the customer wants um but that's a single goal that you're working towards and there's multiple multiple routes towards it whereas when you're in equity research you're essentially you've got to build a model exactly the way your senior associate or your MD says you build the model, uh, you build the report exactly the way that the company style has, uh, you don't deviate from company line on inflation or anything like that. Um, and so I kind of, I, I really learned a lot. Uh, it was a great way to start a career, but I very quickly realized that I much preferred startups, entrepreneurial life, flexibility, creativity, um, and having that one goal of building something that's going to make customers come back. Uh, rather than working narrow parameters. Okay. And whilst you was at uni, did you do any, you know, entrepreneurial endeavors, any sort of, you know, side hustles or side gigs um, uh, that helped you discover that? I did. I, I, a very, very dear friend of mine, um, Dominic, we, he and I, um, we lived together at the time and um, we ended up doing quite a strange business where we sold incontinence pads um, over Amazon via dropshipping. Uh, so we'd buy in, I think at one point we bought 10,000 incontinence pads via Alibaba, uh, mm-hmm. had them shipped uh, all the way from China into the UK. Uh, and we didn't actually get them to go to a warehouse because we were testing them at the start. Uh, so our entire dorm room, both his and mine and most of the living room, uh, was absolutely full to the brim with incontinence pads. Um, and then we just had to try and ship them, sell them. Uh, our parents, our parents' friends, our friends, our friends' parents, uh, anyone at the university who listened, uh, we would even kind of say, you don't have to 
you could buy the incontinence pad. We'll put Kit Kats in there so that you get the Kit Kats in the mess in the mail rather than just getting the incontinence pads. Um, and it really, I mean, we learned we learned a lot doing that. We lost quite a bit of money. Um, uh, realized um, two nineteen-year-olds in a dorm room. Uh, we were not Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, we were <laughs> uh, we were just messing around, really. But it was it was great fun, really good fun. We had a great mentor who was teaching us a lot about how to advertise online, um, how to listen to customer feedback. I mean, that's the one thing which I've learned from out for all this. For example, we were selling incontinence pads, thinking we'd be selling to people who needed them, uh, but actually we ended up being bought mostly by people who had pets who were using them for pet training, uh, for house training, their cats and dogs. Uh, so it just tells you that what you, that's a good UX, UI. You can try it, you can anticipate what your users are going to do, but actually it's what your users do end up doing, which is what matters the most. Um uh, but that was my that was my kind of my first kind of experience of entrepreneurialism, uh, and luckily we didn't lose too much money and we had a lot of fun doing it. Okay, um, you know what made you you know do that, like especially a business you know around incontinence you know pads as well, because obviously if it's something like I don't know if you're doing a computer science degree and you're doing mobile development and you like you know social media and you think you know what I'll try a bit of like a social media app for example, like some sort of forum or blog that's kind of in line. So like, you know, why, uh, you know, business, you know, doing your own business and then why that particular business of pads? So it's, uh, I've always had to kind of like a, a soft spot for kind of get rich quick schemes. I've always been kind of like a bit of an economist like that. I love the idea of uh, not necessarily easy money, but I like the idea of buying something and selling it for profit. Always have ever since I was a kid. Um, and uh, it was a friend of my dad's who was uh, running a very, very successful at the time dropshipping uh, operation. And he was our mentor throughout this. Uh, and he was giving us all this advice on how do you pick a product? Do you do it from the demand side? Look what people are buying. Do you do it from the supply side? Uh, look what's easy to get shipped, etc. And he said, you really want to find that sweet spot, which is something where there's no market leader, but there is demand for it, uh, that it's easy to ship, easy to store. Um and the great thing about an incontinence pad uh, is it's durable, so it's not going to go off. Yeah. Uh, it's resilient. It doesn't tear easily. It doesn't break easily. Uh, it's two-dimensional, which is massive in kind of uh, physical products. Like, you've got to really think about the physical product. If it's two-dimensional, you can stack it. Um, so that massively cuts down like a 1,000 incontinence pads. I think we could store it in about 1.2 square meters or something. So that was fantastic. Um and we, we kind of got, I got into it because I saw my friend, my dad's friend was doing, uh, I liked it. He was very, very kind and said, look, I'll mentor you in this. If you guys do our social, if, if you guys do the social media for me. And so we did the social media for him kind of doing Facebook posts, Instagram posts, YouTube comments, YouTube videos. Uh, and that was good learning as well um, to kind of generate a buzz around his product. Um, but yeah, it was just um, at the time I'd, I, I thought I've, when I was a kid, I could do a little bit of basic HTML and CSS, and I wasn't bad with a computer. Um, but I didn't really learn to code until around about 2017, 2018. Uh, I got into AWS for a couple of contracting jobs, uh, learned the AWS platform. Then I learned Python. I actually knew I'd found, on my research degree, I had to learn R and MATLAB, which were not great languages. Uh, and then I learned Java, which I didn't really enjoy until I've kind of found python absolutely loved it found the django web framework absolutely loved that and um that's kind of been my journey into coding at the time when i was 20 i was not good enough to code to build a kind of a a social media app or anything like that okay 
And, you know, at university, you did a, you got a Bachelor of Arts in philosophy and, you know, economics. Obviously, that kind of lines up with your, your time as an economist, you know, close brothers asset management, JP Morgan. But then, obviously, that that's a bit different to, you know, Cavendish Milton, now SurveyMind. So what made you go and do philosophy and economics and, you know, what was the key moments where you f- you felt like this probably isn't the way I want to, you know, pursue my future? So philosophy and economics, I- I've always loved philosophy ever since I can, well, I mean, I suppose I didn't really know what it was when I was under the age of 10. But since I really knew what it was, I've loved reading about problems kind of, I, I think I was about 11 or 12 when I came across um, Bertrand Russell's problems of philosophy and sorry no history of western philosophy and that was a book which i really really enjoyed i got really into it as a teenager uh loved a lot of different philosophers from marx and nietzsche through to sartre um kierkegaard is a big fan i'm a huge fan of his um and at university i just i i've, I've always loved philosophy so i specialized in that um economics it's it's one which is it's very closely related to philosophy um in the sense that you're really trying to take a very abstract problem and break it down into its component parts. Um, economics is a bit more hands-on, a bit more genuine real-world modelling than philosophy, which can be arguing about completely abstract things. Um, but yeah, I just I, I wanted to do a mixture of those uh, those two subjects. Uh, they were what I did for A level. Um, I did a bit of maths and physics and stuff as well, but they they were the two which really kind of appealed to me. Um, and as an 18 year old, you don't really know what you want to do. I kind of had a rough idea that maybe I'd do journalism, maybe I'd do finance, maybe I'd do something completely different, maybe stay in academia. Um, but they were just the ones that kind of, I got kind of drawn into. Um, and that was a thing where kind of doing a joint honours degree, you kind of, you get sat with two different groups of students. I had the philosophy students on the one hand with crazy hair and very relaxed attitudes and then the economics cohort on the other hand which is this bunch of 18 year olds who come into their lectures wearing a suit tie and briefcase and they're all applying for these things called spring weeks which i'd never even heard of didn't even have a clue that you did apply for a job at 18 or 19 um and they kind of were all going for consultancy or banking uh so if it weren't for the exposure to them on my course i wouldn't have even tried to get into things like close brothers or jp morgan um but luckily for exposure to them, I did. I uh, got a lot of help along the way. Um, and yeah, that's kind of how I fell into that. It's I think I think that's a lot of what university is, really. It's your, you don't really know what you're going to get yourself into until you get there, and then you fall into a lot of random things you didn't really expect. Uh, but it worked out well. Okay. I mean, it, not during university. Actually, n- n- not my course, I should say, but like at the end of university and post-university, I really did get into, you know, philosophy and, you know, economics as well. I started, you know, looking at scientists, a lot of scientists, a lot of, you know, philosophers, you know, a lot of the ones, you know, that you're mentioning, Nietzsche, Karl Marx and, you know, Engels as well, a lot of that side of it and, you know, alternative ways of, you know, running an economy, running, you know, the financial system. You know, I did really, you know, essentially start going down a huge rabbit hole and it's still something that I'm actively, you know, doing. I, I feel like once you 
you know, you go down that rabbit hole, like Morpheus says in in yeah. Matrix. Like you, once you start looking, it, it kind of it's difficult not to you know look at it. It's difficult to look back because you start seeing so many different things from a different perspective. You start realizing, oh, that's why that is the way it is in the world, and you're like. I can't go back to having the blinders on anymore. So oh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I started going crazy into, you know, looking at different things. And, you know, once you start looking at all these different people and all the time I'm coming across someone new, so you know, some new economist, some new philosopher, you know, some new mathematician. And I'm like, it just, what, I want to say elevates the game, but it, you look at anything, how did, how does everyone not know about this? Uh, mm. um, but yeah, it's those are sort of discussions that I love having. You know, talking about you know Nietzsche or Engels or Marx or you know a- any of these philosophers and mathematicians and scientists really, and then you know their ways of doing things and how how could that potentially be implemented in today's economy and you know what would be the ramifications of implementing it. You know, you know on a large scale and you know where did previous you know, philosophies fail, for example, and were they truly failures, you know, etc. So, yeah, it, it is one of those things, if you start looking into it, it can be very fun, but also very, you know, oh, I want to say time-consuming, but... You, oh, very time-consuming, yeah. yeah. Time-consuming as well, but it, it can just be, like, it just draws you in, and, like, everything... It, it, you almost get that feeling whenever anybody says anything, it can be about anything, it's be like it's not that they're wrong, but it's a so surface level what they're saying compared to everything underneath. Oh, completely. And um I mean time consuming is is a great way of putting it. I, I, I think philosophy is the place to go if you have a lot of questions, but don't expect any answers because you you're just gonna keep finding rabbit hole after rabbit hole. Um for every amazing argument a philosopher can give, there's going to be 10 philosophers who give an equally convincing counter argument. Um, I'm not a relativist or anything at all. I don't, I, I, I think it's important to take a position, but um, you cut, you will lose the courage of a kind of a, a sincerely held faith position quite fast uh, when you realize just how easy it is to dissect so many arguments. Um, oh, oh yeah. And when you realize that, you can't win every argument, even with logic and facts, because not everyone will listen to logic and facts and evidence that is put in front of them. There will be there will be people, and not just a few, probably the vast majority of the world, that they'll say two plus two equals five because that's what they've been told. Uh, and that's one of the things that I've come to realize over the years because you know I've I've come across it in all walks of life when people get too sort of serious and bogged down with some belief again it doesn't have to be philosophical or economical it could just be about movies for example you know something relatively relatively insignificant but they get just so you know you know religious about an idea and a belief that it just hinders their you know life and like at the end of the day it's like does it even matter you know that much and then obviously once you get to the philosophical side of things yeah you can argue all day long with people you can try and persuade them but if you're just 
constantly being that guy that's just fully absorbed in it, and then all you you know focusing is on theory, not really applying anything, and you're and you're just not doing anything yourself. Like that's one thing you've got to be very careful of when studying philosophy and I'll say economics is there's more to life and you know the world than what you'll see in these philosophers what you're reading books because at the end of the day the world moves on even mm-hmm. if you're right it doesn't mean that the world will not you know move on and the world will not function if nobody believes it because you know if you look at maths for example yeah you can say okay it, two plus two does not equal five and logically, people would say that, okay, if people start believing in that on mass, that's wrong. But people believed in incorrect mathematics and incorrect science for decades and centuries, and society advanced. So, so uh, like, people were fine. <laughs> like, progress happened. So it's, it, it, it is one of those things that things can advance even when the belief is wrong. That's, I think that's that touches on one of the most one of the things that philosophy is really good at is it's it's it can tell you when you're wrong in a very profound way uh, and it can show it in a very in a place you would at least expect. Um, there's a story about a Cambridge philosopher Wittgenstein who was uh, walking in a corridor and he comes across a woman who is studying at the college at the time and she says uh, it's funny that the earth revolves around the sun because it looks like the sun revolves around the earth. And Wittgenstein just kind of looks out the window and then he looks back at her and goes, what would it look like if it was the other way around? And then he just walks off and she just sits there and she's confused. And then she, it suddenly dawns on her that it looks like the earth is going around the sun. Sorry, it looks like the sun's going around the earth, but the sun's going around, the earth is going around the sun. And that that sentence alone sums up to me how many problems there are both in philosophy of language that we struggle so much to communicate with each other as entities so much about kind of the sense perception how we can't trust the knowledge of our senses uh so much about what the kind of the nature of reality is what does it mean for something to revolve around another from the earth's perspective it looks like one way from the sun's it looks like another from a neutral perspective it looks completely different um and that one kind of anecdote to me was that's i've always found wittgenstein really hard to understand i think i think most people do um and i i would be lying if i said i really understood his philosophy but that that one simple kind of engagement in a hallway to me sums so much about why philosophy is such a fantastic subject but like you say time consuming and <laughs> you got to think about the real world you can't spend your entire time arguing about books and things and and like you said some people are going to have beliefs. You can't reason them out of it. If they weren't reasoned into it in the first place, you can't reason them out of it. I don't know who it was that said that, but that's something which teenage me didn't understand, but twenty-year-old me. I've does, had yeah. that. I've had that issue. You know, I, you know, growing. I think everyone has that issue. You know, growing mm. up pretty much. But yeah, it is one of. But but the other thing, you know, the other thing that I've learned growing up is, even if you do persuade the other person. Then what? Like, if I persuade somebody that two plus two doesn't equal five, it equals four, how is my life any better? Like, the, the the coming to that realization is also profound. That okay, 
even if I'm so good at persuasion, because it's uh, at that point, it's not about fact, it's about your level of persuasion. Hence why, you know, I feel like the legal system is heavily broken because it's less about fact and more about the quality of the lawyer that can put together a case that can persuade the judge and, you know, the jury. So, because in reality, otherwise you would just have a list of facts on paper, a list of proposed facts, and then it would be based on that and an AI could judge that, whereas it's more of a, a performance. And obviously, uh, performance by once a lawyer might might not be as good as another lawyer, but the first lawyer's you know proposal might actually be right and accurate, whereas the second might might be misleading. But yeah, going back to you know philosophy and economics and trying to persuade people, that's something I feel like you know it took me a while to realize that okay, I'll persuade somebody that I'm right, but what has that actually mattered? If that person isn't constantly in front of me saying that I'm wrong, constantly doing something that hinders my life, if they just happen to have a belief system, but they're going about their day and they're not bringing it up, realizing that it doesn't actually matter. It's like, you know, take flat earth, for example. I don't believe the earth is flat. I believe it's round. And I feel like, as a teenager, if I had come across that concept in and people believed it, I would have tried to persuade them out of it. Whereas now I've got one or two friends that do believe it, but because it never comes up in conversation and we just enjoy each other's company within the confines of our, you know, friendship, it it doesn't matter. It's like it's it's a belief that has no bit to me, it's as important as him maybe liking noodles over you know, you know tagliatelle you know exactly yeah. like it, it's so insignificant relative to the grand scheme of things and i feel like as i'm getting older as i'm you know growing as a person and having kids and a family it's like so many things just don't matter and then that goes back to the side of you know you've got to pay the bills you've got to work you've got to do things you've got to enjoy your life there's only so much you know, philosophy that you can just constantly argue about. Or again, I would say it's important that people learn about philosophy and economics, but don't get so centered around it that you just don't enjoy, you know, your life. You don't enjoy, you know, what you are doing and enjoying. Absolutely. I think that's exactly the right way to put it. And um, yeah, if someone's got a deeply held belief that you deeply disagree with, if you it's, it's it's not your job to try and convince them of a different position it's your job to try and reconcile whatever it is you have to do to interact with them and make sure that you can still interact as people i think the world would be a much better place if um people were able to peacefully coexist with people with different opinions yeah i mean that that's obviously you know a major issue if you start looking at religion if you start looking at you know different politics left right etc um but yeah like uh, that's definitely something I I know a lot of people still to this day that are 50, 60 years old, that any chance they get in, they're basically, re- they, they would never admit they're having an argument. They'll say they're having a constructive debate and they're trying to, you know, prove, basically prove somebody is wrong and that they're right. And even if they are right, it's like, but to what end? Like, it, it, it gets to a point where it does not matter. Mm. I, because- I think that's... Yeah. Sorry, I didn't want to interrupt you. Yeah, I was just about to say, you know, take, you know, you like Python, you know, for example. I'm not the biggest fan of Python, but if I, you know, if I just sit here trying to persuade every person that loves Python that, let's say, C++ is better, it's like, but, you know, to what, 
you know, end because uh, at the end of the day, I, I understand that Python is a major language now. I understand that for machine learning, AI, Python, you know, for better or for worse, that is, you know, a way to go about it. And that's what a lot of researchers and developers and companies are using. But it, it, it doesn't, I don't stand to benefit from me persuading you that you're wrong about Python and oh, that it's not, yeah. the, you know, the best language. I, I think that's, um, it's also, it's, it's kind of the, the difference between kind of trying to persuade someone and having an argument versus having an academic debate in the appropriate yeah. context. And like, um, I, for example, I love Python, but I would also never say necessarily it's the best language. Uh, I think it's the best language for certain things. Exactly. Um, uh, and actually, to be fair, I, my favorite language is not C++. It's C, which is the Ooh. bedrock of both languages. Uh, so like, I'm, I, I think that's the most beautiful language that was ever written. Uh, and I think the modern world wouldn't be anything close to what it is without C and the work they did in the early 70s. Um, but exactly, Python wouldn't exist without it. JavaScript wouldn't exist without it. All the operating systems we use wouldn't exist without it. Um, and you get such a wonderful kind of blooming of several different languages which are all built on top of it, like C++, like Java, like Python, like JavaScript, all these families of languages. Um, and I think if you have a debate within certain confines of why is X better than Y, for what reasons, and you're not necessarily trying to convince someone you're wrong or I'm right, you're trying to say, well, these are my reasons for thinking this in this particular environment, that's very productive. I mean, that's how humans learn. It's the right way to do it. It's just, I think things like politics, religion, philosophy, economics, um, that's where being right is important, but it's not as important as peaceful coexistence. Yes, and I feel like that's something that a lot of people don't understand. I feel like people can get their head around not harming each other and not killing each other and thinking, okay, as long as you're not doing that, you're peacefully coexisting to some extent. But like like, it goes beyond that. Obviously, you know, as we've discussed, having difference in opinion if i think you're wrong about something like what does it matter me trying to constantly persuade you i've got to enjoy my life i've got to live my life i have stuff to do you have stuff to do as well and you've got to enjoy and you know live your life and there's definitely that fine balance and i feel like if you start studying philosophy and economics it gives you a better appreciation. If you go in with an open mind, it gives you a better appreciation of the world. And I've seen that in myself and other people that do openly, you know, without any, you know, prejudice or as much, you know, lack of prejudice as, you know, you can have, because you're going to have some. And uh, when you start studying it, you do appreciate the world more. You start realizing, yeah, this thing just does not matter. Uh, like in my day-to-day life uh, and you get a, a better appreciation of just life in general and enjoying life absolutely so you know where do you see the next five years for survey mind you know obviously you, you know you've gone away from surveys you know you're doing something slightly different with the transcribing and the summarizing and obviously, there's a lot of new advancements coming out in AI. If you look at ChatGPT with a, you know GPTs as well, and obviously we can discuss that in a second. But where do you see Survey Mind specifically in the next five to ten years? So, I mean, I'd love for it to absolutely explode, and I think maybe it will. Um, I think in the in the near to immediate term future, um, we're looking at potentially doing a fundraise at some point. We we're thinking of doing it already, but actually we've pushed it back till. Uh, we reached 
the more product market fit stage which we're at right now uh so that'd be kind of the short short term ambitions is keep finding this product market fit keep building a good product and potentially do a raise uh five to ten years um one of our kind of our early mentors said the phrase if you're building this product now with ai what you need to make sure that you do is that this is this becomes the tool that sits on every researcher's desk um and if in 10 years time we're on say 50 percent plus of qual researchers desks i'm going to be a very very happy person um but it's really just the journey to get there there's a lot going on um and like you touch on ai it's such a non-linear timeline ai the amount of stuff which happens in i mean years happen in the space of weeks in ai that whole ai open ai firing saga i mean that was like that was months worth of news condensed into a couple of days just in the corporate world alone um the amount of the new technology the speed at which these models are getting more powerful and can be run on smaller hardware the kind of quantization process i'm a big fan of um the ability to get more out of fewer parameters um the ability to specialize models with specific types of fine tuning specific types of model combinations i think that's going to be an enormous place to look at um as a sector as a whole um i don't think we're anywhere near as close to agi as some people seem to think um and i'm not necessarily qualified to say that myself i kind of defer to people like jan lacan who i've got a huge amount of respect for and he very much says the same that look this is not on the near-term horizon uh, there's a lot that still needs to be done before we even get close to that. Um, but I think the amount of benefits that's going to come to business, that's going to come to personal computing, it's going to be like the internet in the early 90s to the late 90s, but even bigger because people don't people have Siri in their pockets, for example. They've got a bit of a lot of people use ChatGPT here and there. Quite a few people still haven't even touched it, and quite a few people don't even realize that things like Dali and stable diffusion exist in the uh, image generation realm and whisper in the audio realm and things like that um and all these tools are just we're kind of we're at the base of the kind of the s curve as it were uh we haven't even really begun the ascent yet this is if chat gpt is kind of netscape navigator this is 1993 1994 in terms of the internet we haven't even come close to the mass adoption that i think is going to come uh in narrow ai we don't need agi to make this the big thing and agi is if it were very near, that would be very worrying. But I just don't think it's anywhere near as close as it as some people seem to think. And I think much bigger danger is bad actors, criminals, rogue states, terrorists getting access to the powerful narrow AI models um, and using them, or building their own proprietary closed source models and using them. Uh, and over, or the flip side of that is overregulation, making it regulatory capture and in the hand of a few few small big tech companies who then control the entirety of the media output and the way we access to these machines so sorry that's a very rambling answer but um for survey mind i'd love for it to explode and i'm really working on that uh, but ai as a whole i mean ai is going to explode and it's going to be very fascinating to watch oh yeah and, and it's already exploding and like you said i agree this is like the internet in the early days of the 90s the question is is it going to pan out over in the next 10 20 years or the next 6 to 18 months because as you've said the advancements in ai like 12 months ago chat gbt wasn't really i mean obviously it was a thing that's been developed it's been a year that's come out now but it wasn't things it wasn't something that we was using you know publicly whereas now 
you can find a lot of people that have either heard about it or are using it to some extent. And even if they don't know, then they might be using it through some sort of, you know, Chrome summary plugin, for example. So there's a lot of people that have access to some of these, you know, LLMs one way or, you know, another. And yeah, the advancements, you know, that are happening are pretty crazy. And I do like that point that you touched on that a lot of people do think that AGI is closer than, again, as you believe and I personally believe as well, it is. But the other thing is, what the last six to 12 months have shown is AGI might not be the thing that, you know, the big thing. Like, we're getting so much stuff from LLMs, from generative AI, that it's like, okay, AGI is great and it's cool and you'll be very groundbreaking, but there's so much that can be done without AGI. And it's always that thing, you know, AGI is going to be the big one. Without that, AI is just weak. But we've seen that, okay, using ChatGPT, it's like using Google, but on steroids. It's like if Google was, a, you know, a two-year-old toddler, you know, ChatGPT is Mike Tyson in the ring. Like mm, it's, That's like, a good I mean, analogy. No, you, you've got to, you know, figure out how to, you know, use ChatGPT, obviously prompt engineering. I feel like that's a role and you know a tech like a specification of roles that all start becoming more and more popular prompt engineering uh, but once you figure out how to start leveraging it and what what commands to use and when to also use it you start to realize like why am i using google why am i using all these you know other tools them like on a daily basis i'm using chat gpt i'm using it to summarize data or you know format data to you know search for stuff it's it's insane what you can do relative to google and then that's not even including plugins that you can get for it or you know any extra libraries or you know the gpt you know system that's been you know released about two three weeks ago now so yeah it is really crazy and the advancements in ai and chat gpt is like insane oh it's, it's massive i mean um that that kind of november december last year when it just it hit the scene i i've been playing with the gpt api for a long time before about a year uh, and they're kind of the, the old school gpt3 playground so i kind of knew i knew what it could do for example with coding i'd seen that um i remember it was around about july of last year it's about 18 months ago uh i asked gpt3 davinci uh to produce a CRM system using in, in Django to so kind of give me the exact code for the models, give me the exact code for the views, uh, give me some base HTML templates, etc. Um, and I was thinking, okay, it's gonna it's gonna spit out rubbish, but it's gonna be disjointed. There's not gonna be any kind of it won't have the understanding to link the model to the view and then link that to the template, etc. And I was blown away with the fact that it could do exactly that. Couldn't build a full scale application and to my knowledge it still couldn't right now they haven't solved the long-term memory issue well enough yet but it clearly had a it, it was able to it had enough domain specific knowledge and understanding of the question problem of, of the problem statement to produce code which worked and was on point and integrated with each other and you could actually at that point july 2022 cut and paste and put it into a project and with a couple of tweaks here and there have something up on your screen um and when you think that that's that's on the model which i think they're trained by 2020 gpt3 i think if i remember by the end of 2020 they had that model uh, and then gpt4 they've been working on for a long time uh and gpt4 i mean 
that could write a full documentation for a project if you had enough tokens. Um, I, I shudder to think just how much better these bigger models are going to be the GPT-5s if Facebook releases a larger version of Llama um, anything else which comes out of the open source community which can compete with these things uh, because I mean Claude and Bard can do very similar things as well um, it's it's going to it's going to destroy not not destroy but it's going to replace a lot of jobs which are at the moment quite maybe rote or menial but do have a large element of knowledge based intensity to them um, Graphic design is one, for example, where these image generation models, I really think that the tools which they've been learning for the last 20, 30 years, the illustrators, the photoshops, a lot of that, I mean, surely that, I I don't know much about these kind of fields, but surely that must be very, very soon being replaced by models which are AI first. I I, I don't know enough, but I I think that's going to happen to quite a few industries. So that's, you know, Really interesting that you brought up that particular, you know, field, that particular industry, you know, artists, you know, for example. My belief is slightly different. Right now, you've got two main, you know, prevailing, you know, schools of thought when it comes to AI and its disruptive nature on different industries. You've got the one which is very pro and, you know, I guess rallying for it, saying that, oh, it's going to remove, you know, artists for the most part. It's going to get rid of the lawyers because you can do so much, for, you know, through, you know, AI. You know, it can, you know, do a lot of research. You know, doctors are going to be going away, et cetera, et cetera. Then you've got the other school of thought. And a lot of this is from people that are within that industry because I think they partly, they buried their head in the sand. Partly they're, you know, too, you know, absorbed by their own let's say significance and they're saying you know it's not going to be able to replace me as an artist it's not going to be able to replace me as a doctor me as a lawyer for example it's just not going to happen i've had this conversation you know with doctors in not necessarily just to do with ai just technology in general and you know they don't want to you know believe that or you're, you know you'll replace them and i feel like every year that goes by that it doesn't really majorly replace them or there's like a technological advancement and then they see that oh, there's so many limitations to it they see that as evidence that they can't be replaced and it's just like no because this is you know it's just a stepping stone my school of thought is in between i feel like if you take the role of an artist i feel like the role that of an artist today let's take video games be a bit more specific a video game you know visual effects artist that role in five to ten years in the future will not exist in the current state that it is and what i mean by that is if you take a secretary for example a secretary in the 1950s was very different to a secretary in 2023 the the on paper the that role that specific title secretary still exists people are still secretaries people are still assistants but if you applied for a secretarial role today and had no experience using a mobile phone no experience using you know excel word email computers anything like that and you had the skill set of a secretary back in the 1950s you would not get a job like the the times have changed so you can say that a secretary role from the 1950s that secretary does not exist anymore that almost 
industry, the industry hasn't gone. The actual role no longer exists, but it's, it's because it's morphed. It's you know changing. They've had to, you know, instead of technology taking over the role, its technology has been baked into the role. I don't think a lot of these AI advancements, no matter how good they are, I don't think they're going to do to their respective industries what electricity did to the wire oil industry or what cars did to the horse and carriage industry. I think it's going to be a matter of in 10 years, if you want to be a lawyer, it's going to be, okay, do you know how to prompt engineer? It probably won't even be called that. You'll, you'll be just called something else. And do you know how to leverage AI to you know improve your workflow? Uh, because at the end of the day, people can Google and get legal advice, but people still use lawyers. Like the, Google did not eliminate lawyers like at all. Or like in no shape and form, doctors are still in demand, even though you can Google and you know with a bit of common sense you can you can kind of self-diagnose. But people still use doctors because they want that professional experience, they want that professional sort of feedback. And I feel like people will still go to these trades. Yes, you may want to you may be able to whip up some concept art quickly using Dolly or you know some other you know generative AI instead of using a concept artist, but an artist and even concept artists will still be around in five to 10 years, in my opinion, but they'll just be leveraging tools a lot more like AI tools. And in terms of stuff like Photoshop and Illustrator, or maybe even like Premiere Pro when you're looking into video editing, I don't think those tools will go away. I think one, they'll bake in AI into it and large language models to help the flow and two uh, i feel like they'll maybe the initial stage you know people might use some sort of generator but they'll still use those pieces of software just the way people for the most part a lot of websites are still and applications are still made using code it's not all WYSIWYG. it's not all dreamweaver even though that kind of was the promise of some of these you know WYSIWYG tools that you wouldn't need to code anymore that didn't go away it just allowed a few extra people to get into it and have a go. That's my opinion. I think that's where AI is going to go. Uh, I feel like there's a lot of people right now that can really benefit from brushing up on the skills uh, of AI and making sure they're well-equipped. That'll be the best way. And I feel like there's like people are too polarizing one way or another. Either they're going to destroy the industry or that the AI is just not capable of doing you know anything like what they can do but i think there's going to be i think it's going to be the middle ground and i feel like the artists for example that refuse to leverage these tools that refuse to actually you know embrace these new advancements yet yeah, they will no longer have a job it, it will get to that point but that's not because the role of an artist has gone away it's just the technical specifications have changed and if they try to stay the same, they will no longer be able to find work. No, that, that's a very interesting point. And I think, I think I mostly agree with you, but I think it's a matter of, I mean, uh, I, I think I certainly agree with you that some, some I, I certainly agree with your point that all technicians, and I use the word technicians to mean people who work in a knowledge intensive mm-hmm. service capacity, are going to have to adapt <laughs> because mm. like i mean that's a very good analogy you made with kind of 1950s secretaries versus today's secretaries 
a totally different skill set. I, I think it's going to be a matter of proportion between how much of the work that is necessary at the moment that is currently being done by a large number of people. So legal AI is a big one where there's a large number of overworked, stressed out junior lawyers yeah. who are just going through briefs and reading, preparing documents nonstop. Surely that to me, that's the kind of thing that's a big expense for the law firms. They can suddenly cut back on. Uh, I imagine that must be a proportion where a lot of those junior jobs must go. But then again, how are you going to get the route to senior lawyer without having a junior lawyer? So there's going to still be at least some junior lawyers, for example. Yeah. Um, plus, I, plus, yeah. Plus also, if let's say, you know, a lot of that grunt work, because that, you know, that's what it is with a lot of junior roles, whether that's in coding, whether that's in, you know, you know, in the legal industry, that might get brushed, you know, pushed onto AI. I think there'll still be the element of part of it being checked by humans and that can be partly done by juniors. But again, I think it'll be that thing, okay, their time has now been freed. We had the bullet, the budget allocation to get five juniors this year. We'll probably still, you know, hire these five, you know, in this imaginary situation, but what they'll be doing will be slightly different because mm. they're, what they was doing before has for the most part been offloaded to ai for example so i again it, it does come back to that thing of the junior role may no longer exist in its current state in 10 years but again you made that point how do they go to being a, a senior and then a managing partner do they just immediately hire to managing partner out of university we both know that's not gonna happen mm. no i think that, that 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 touches on the issue and it's it's one where as a society, more so than anything else, we need to make sure that whatever the outcome this is in our specific industry or wherever it may be, we're prepared for both the worst case scenario and also a great case scenario, which would be if they had a budget for five juniors and those five juniors were slaving away over a desk for a long time, now do they have the capacity to do something more interesting and maybe their pay goes down because they're not quite as they're not working twenty hour days anymore, but at least they're still they've still got a job. Uh, I I think in some situations, like like I say, my background's in tutoring, um, and I know for a fact for high kind of high end tutors, there'll always be a market for high end personal tutors. But one thing that AI would have a fantastically positive application in would be giving everyone access free, essentially, to their own personal tutor, an AI bot who understands them, who knows their learning profile, who knows where they need help. Uh, one of the key things for a tutor. It's for a tutor to be patient. And that's the great thing about AI. It's infinitely patient. AI is never going to get bored. It's never going to be annoyed at being asked the same question 10 times in a row. Um, and so I, th I think there's going to be a lot of benefit from applications where we can democratize access for a lot of people to services they otherwise couldn't have. Um, and if that means that the economic effect is not job losses, but actually job reimaginings, that's probably not the right word, job kind of People get, people reinvented themselves as specialists using the AI tools in more creative ways, and they kind of direct the AI tools. I think that'll be great. Um, but I am worried. I mean, I mean, some some industries, translation is another one I often think about. Once the translation models are perfected, and it can be done in near real time with earpieces, all those people that have spent years perfecting their language skills to become translators, are they going to be in ten years' time as reliable as AI? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe they're not even going to be as fast as AI. Maybe AI is going to outperform them. And there, how do you have that 
I, to, to me, that's if, if we can't, if we kind of go back to the secretary analogy, that's a secretary who's a specialist dictation taker typist, mm-hmm. and that skill has now essentially gone. Um, I don't know how you re I don't know how you reimagine that job, for example. And I think those are where, where we can find places like that where it's hard to reimagine how their resources get well allocated that were prepared for job losses there. Oh yeah, and obviously it's not to say that there won't be industry or whole sections of jobs that won't get eliminated. It's just, I don't think it's going to happen like, you know, to the artists, to the lawyers, to the doctors, the way people are, you know, thinking, but yeah, you know, that's a good industry and, you know, job to talk about is, you know, translating and, you know, summarizing, you know, for example, you know, AI is already doing a great job and it's only going to get better. But again, it partly it is, you as an individual, and this kind of comes back to a philosophical and economical aspect, you have to be willing to adapt. If you see, if the winds of change are, you know, coming to you, but and you can see they're a few years away, if you choose not to, you know, act and you choose to put your head in the sand, that, you know, it gets to a point where you're no longer the, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, you're no longer... Uh, um, it's not the word innocent. Uh, you're no longer the. Do you know the word I'm looking for? Um, um kind of not not off the top of my head. But master of your kind of your own fate in that sense. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. The, the, that is, you know, what I'm saying. But the, the, the other, yeah, it gets to a point where you you can no longer offload the blame to someone else and you know, you've got to take the blame, you know, for yourself. Because, you know, if, for example, there's, let's say, the, you know, in an office building, there's a hallway and, you know, you go through the hallway and a tile off the ceiling falls and hits your head. Okay, not your fault. But if you keep going down that hallway and you know there's tiles falling uh, and nobody else is going down the hallway anymore, it gets to a point where you're you're responsible for that now. Like, you've seen it happen long enough and had it occurred to you that you can't offload the blame to someone. And that's what I'm saying with this. It gets to a point where, okay, if you've had five to 10 years to, you know, change career or slightly skill up a bit, if you don't, that's that's obviously your fault. Like, the absolutely, like it's not happening tomorrow. It's not even happening next year. But it's happening in many industries, and I, I feel like that's just something that a lot of people just aren't, you know, taking uh, seriously, and are either leaving it too long. You've seen it with, you know, industry disruptors like Airbnb and you know Uber. I remember talking to people that are newer taxi drivers, like family members, and talking to them about it when it wasn't even available in the area yet, or it was very rare. And I was like, you know, this is already happening in America. It's kind of here in the UK in certain major cities, but it's going to happen, you know, start jumping on this. And they had a million excuses. And now they've had to jump on it, but they had none of the initial benefits of the decent pay that you got initially. They obviously, there'll be people that was on it from day one and they probably got really good reviews. So people, you know, want to, you know, go with them and they figured out how the system works. It gets to a point where, okay, if you've been a taxi driver for 20 years and you saw this coming five years ago, but you you, you refuse to change, it's no longer somebody else's fault. It's your fault. Like you've refused to change. Yeah, I think that's a good analogy and a good way of thinking about it. Um, it's it's 
it's not it's not so much about collective responsibility, it's about individual responsibility for your own role and making sure that you adapt to the new technology. Um, I think something I something I slightly worry about is I often compare AI to the internet revolution. The internet revolution killed a lot of jobs, but it didn't destroy the the economy. The unemployment yeah. didn't go up massively. Uh, but I think that it made a lot of work and maybe this is just the modern world, made a lot of work less meaningful. People find less meaning in their jobs. Not everyone, but there's certainly a kind of a, a modern malaise. People aren't feeling connected to their communities, connected to their jobs, connected to their careers, as much as, on my understanding of it, 30, 40, 50 years ago they did. Um, and I hope that when AI redistributes economic resources, it does so in a way that doesn't mean that people do even more disconnecting jobs even more jobs where they feel like they're just pushing buttons and not producing anything it actually allows them to be more creative to be more fulfilled um and if they give if the end result is that they have more free time that they're able to use their more that that free time and maintain the same basic standard of living um i think a lot of this will tie into bigger conversations around things like ubi and the way to deal with how these ai systems get deployed i mean we talk about generative AI in this conversation. We've been under the control of AI in social media with the algorithm for a lot longer than the last year and a half. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> and that kind of conversation hasn't really and been... Media and marketing yeah. agencies. So, yeah, like, exactly. it's been around. It, it, and it's had a major, you know, influence. And um, obviously, you know, it's good, you know, interesting that you brought up, you know, universal basic income. UBI is something that I'm a overall big proponent for. I think you'll be, you know, personally... A good thing but again obviously you know it's you know figuring out how do we deploy it because obviously you do get people that are lazy but again do you have some sort of certification system that they have to go through to you know be able to get it is it just a blank check for everyone what's the amount you know the ramifications of that like and i i we're talking about ai and we're talking about how it could you know affect you know work and you know reduce you know certain roles and the 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 involvement. It reminds me of the quote from John Maynard Keynes when he talks about a fifteen-hour work week. This was about a hundred years ago. He talked about fifteen-hour work week will be the norm, mm. uh, and then nobody will have, will have to, uh, which is roughly about two days, effectively. So a two-day work week will be the norm in the twenty-first century, and it's far from that. Like if anything, people are working more hours because they can bring their laptop home. They have their phone with emails. You know, before, most of the work, if you was not in the office, you pretty much could not do the work. You could potentially think about it, but that's as far as the advancement in your work could go. But now you could have your laptop. It could be 11 p.m. and you could be you know, doing some research. You could be writing something. You could be writing some code. Like, there's so much work now that can be done after 5 p.m., whilst you're at home whilst you're commuting whilst you're on holiday and i think there's an element of that and social media can you because you mentioned that there's a disconnect between work and people's sort of i guess satisfaction from work i mean part of it is just one that would there's so many more hours that we we are either doing or we feel like we should be doing and then combined with social media like 50 years ago if you you know wasn't doing that well you didn't really have much exposure beyond a few 
core you know friends and family members to compare yourself against now you could be earning a million pound a year at the age of 30 but then you look online and then there's somebody earning 10 million a year that's like 16 years old for example and on the surface of it earning a million a year at the age of 30 is great like that is by virtually every measure just from a financial perspective a huge success but when you look on social media you seem like a failure uh, and i think that's a huge problem that we have as a society now is there so many ways of comparing and then comparing to the point where we do just seem like a failure in some realm in our life and as a result we kind of feel disconnected i think there's an element of that as well oh absolutely i mean that's a classic example of a technology which was intended to connect people and bring people together <laughs> and it's done the exact opposite mm. um so ai could very easily be something which we use to power up and get i mean that, that's a classic example suddenly we've got a tool which gives anyone with a keyboard the ability to produce artwork which literally two years ago uh would have cost several thousand pounds to go and get a graphic designer to produce what are we going to do with that are we going to now get thousands and thousands of briefs and have to go for every single brief whenever we want to get a piece of art and fill people's time up like that uh we've got of making work to fill the time or like you say can we go down to a four-day work week that that ties in a bit with the kind of the ubi consideration as yeah. well um how can we get a lot, a lot i look at the data security point a lot of survey mind and think about kind of ownership of data i think people are going to learn like at some point rather than kind of discussing the regulation of ai it'll be about how does the ai interact with you what do you want it to know about you what do you not want it to know about you um because it's very easy i mean that kind of doom scrolling paradigm i know how it rules a lot of people's lives myself included when i kind of go on youtube shorts so i can spend half an hour and have done nothing because it's knows <laughs> exactly what i want to watch that. and it's 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 frightening yeah, it, it's just it's it, it it eats up time in such a bad way. We want to make sure as a society that it gives us that time productively, and if not productively, for our kind of like better human flourishment. Oh yeah, and like the you know obviously you know we're talking about this you know reducing the number of hours working maybe not two day but you know like four day work we can I know some companies have you know deployed that and seems to have been successful in the the initial term obviously long term have your effect companies humans that on an individual and a family level and the society as a whole let's say over 20 30 50 100 years you know is obviously still to be you know seen the problem i have with stuff like this especially when we're talking about like a 15 hour work week two day work week is that with ai yes we can talk about how it could potentially bring this on but will companies because those are the people that are hiring people and and they're the ones setting the hours setting the rules because if a company says your work week is you know 15 hours and you agree to it then your work week is 15 hours if your work week is 60 hours and you agree to it then your work week is 60 hours like it's what you agree to with the employee yes there are certain rules in place in you know law to you know prevent overwork for example but 40 hours is by no means the upper limit of what the legal system allows oh, like, completely, yeah yeah exactly 
the problem I have with these notions that AI or technology might get to a lower, you know, you know, work week is that will a company say, okay, we can get the same output from half the hours, uh, you know, so, so just two to two and a half days, you know, per week. Uh, are we happy with that amount? Instead of saying, okay, we can get this twice the output from the same amount of hours by leveraging this technology. And it only takes one company in 10 companies to, to have that belief system that the other nine are like, we can no longer compete unless we are doing it the same way because the other company that does not mind continuing a five-day work week, for example, by, you know, same number of hours, same number of employees will, uh, you know, advance more. They'll probably have more output. They'll be the one who has the monopoly. They'll be the industry leader. We as competitors, we as participants within the market do not want that. And obviously, naturally, you as a company, you as an individual wouldn't want that. And then let's talk about it on, on another level. If let's say 40 hours a week you for a particular role, the you know re- remuneration is fifty thousand pound a year. You know we'll keep numbers simple. We'll just keep the example simple. Let's say fifty thousand pound a year, and let's say with fifteen hours, you, with some new advancements in technology like AI, you know employees can produce the same amount uh, in fifteen hours, and they're like, okay, you know we want the same amount of money, fifty thousand pound. That's fine. But what if somebody comes along and says? to the company i will work 40 hours uh, i will use this technology so i can get two to three times the output now versus the person who's doing 15 hours for 50,000 pounds but i will work for no penny extra i will work for the 50,000 pound uh, that you used to pay for the full week that people are now only working for 15 hours the employer is going to think okay, uh, obviously I'm going to do that, then that becomes the norm and that's what they ask and expect of, you know, employees and future employees. That's the problem I have is that I feel like on practice, a lot of these ideas that technology can, you know, reduce the amount of hours worked and, you know, the, you know, being overworked. But, okay, AI might, like you take junior lawyers, for example, they might be overworked because they're, you know, going over a lot of legal documentation, a lot, a lot of grunt work. Once that's offloaded, do they just say, okay, we'll let our junior employees, while still paying them, work less? Or do we either A, get them to do something else and work them in a different way? And or do we B, say, okay, we no longer need five junior guys. We only need two. Let's just get rid of the three. Like, that in itself is a different problem. You know, I've got a friend who I've had on the podcast, you know, a few times, and he has a web-free blockchain, now AI agency, which had about 300 people about a year or so ago. And it has 100 now because of how much they've leveraged AI. And he said his output is now roughly 20 to 30% more, even though his number of employees is down by about two thirds. Wow. Like, like he, he went down the decision of, okay, we can keep roughly the same amount of output, but actually they've got a bit more, but let's just say it's the same by reducing the number of employees, hence reducing cost. I mean, that, 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 
what what you kind of touched upon there is is so many different aspects of just how revolutionary this is going to be. Yes. Because I mean, there's so many different questions which I don't think anyone necessarily has the answer to. But once you've got the ability to let's take that that web free example, take two thirds off the staff amount yet double the output you're essentially saying each worker can do what's that six times the output that he could do before uh and that's in what one year of this kind of ai revolution having mainstream tools available um very quickly within three years of that you're going to be able to produce is that right 216 to like one worker can produce the output of an entire company if that was to to scale and obviously it won't scale exactly like that but we're going to very, very quickly get to the point where knowledge-intense work, the technician roles, are going to be zero marginal cost in the same way that word processing, presentation building, a lot of things are already um, that take diagnostics in the case of a doctor. The, the the value at the moment is the training of the doctor for seven years at the university, doing the junior, five years of specialism, and that doctor has then got the skill set to when you then go and see them for the 15 minute, 30 minute appointment, you're not paying for the 15, 30 minutes, you're paying for that 12 years worth of training so that when you tell the doctor the symptoms, they can give you the diagnosis. Now, once you've offloaded that to an AI model, that's zero marginal cost for every extra diagnosis. So how on earth do you price that? What company is going to go out and say, right, we're going to provide diagnoses for 99 cents a diagnosis? Uh, because at some point someone's going to build a model which or a selection of models which can do that um and then doctor and it's going to be as accurate or even more accurate than doctors i, I don't I, that's where i kind of i, I urge on ir on the side of we've seen it happen in certain domains before i mean agriculture is the classic example where it's now essentially a zero marginal cost industry um media has adapted in a very strange way with kind of Netflix and streaming to zero marginal cost there, but knowledge intense tasks like diagnoses, like graphic design, like eventually music production, game production, uh, media itself, kind of the limitless creative possibilities there. Um, pricing is going to be really hard. And the flip side of that is employment and wages is going to be very hard because one's a function of the other. Um, I, for example, we're having this issue of transcription and summarization because it's not human time. Uh, we're thinking, are we doing, okay, we're we doing cost plus pricing. We're we doing value-based pricing. Uh, are we doing equivalent market set pricing? And it's very, very hard because our cost structure is completely different to that of a traditional transcription platform, which will mostly be paying the transcribers for their human hour time and then doing a cost plus based on that. Um, Obviously, we have large fixed costs with running the servers. Um, I think I think it's going to be that's a huge economic question, and I don't think we've got really good answers to it. Us as a society have yet. Yeah, and it's it's one of those things that as a society we need to have these you know discussions, these almost discussions without a end goal, like an end purpose. Like you know, you might have a discussion about a new app design you know a pay like the home page and you know the end goal might be to agree on a layout like there's a specific end goal and something that you can achieve in a meeting or two but there are discussions like these 
that need to literally just be discussions where it's not about being right or wrong. It's not about getting a conclusion, but it's about having these, you know, conversation because I know I'm thinking about certain things that I probably wasn't thinking about uh, now that I've, you know, talk, I'm talking to you and I'm hoping that the certain aspects about AI and, you know, the effects of it on, you know, on the economy that you're thinking about that you may not have thought about before, you know, you, you came on this podcast and, you know, we had this discussion. Because otherwise you have this very, very narrow, you know, you know, lens that you think, okay, it's definitely going to be like this. But if you don't have these open discussions, you just don't realize, okay, you know, what if this one little parameter does change or, you know, what if this happens, that just totally messes it all up. Completely. I mean, that's. I mean, maybe maybe it's the case that it's the with all technology, uh, you can only kind of view it in hindsight and yeah, explain it after the fact. But I I think this is the. I mean, there are so many different problems, but this is one which I think about a lot. And I'm, yeah, it's. I'd love. I, I I'm looking forward to the day when I can look back and say, oh, obviously it was going to be X is how we solve that or something because I don't see what that is right now. <laughs> Yeah, and what I find funny with AI is over the years, it's always been talked about, it's going to replace the menial labor-intensive jobs, stocking shelves, you know, doing, you know, bricklaying, you know, for example, drive, obviously that's that's the big one, you know, driving, Mm. you know, for example. And though there are advancements in those areas, over the last 12 months, the main conversations have been around technical, intellectual jobs lawyers doctors writers um you know coders like that's where he's like chat gpt nobody's talking about chat gpt and saying oh is he going to replace builders like like, they're talking about it potentially transforming the coding industry the legal industry the medical industry the research industry uh you know all of that side of it it's the intellectual side and i feel like that's something that kind of came out of nowhere because when you used to hear to see it in comics or in sci-fi it was always that you know the manual jobs cleaning for example was going to be replaced by technology it was never about oh me as an artist was going to get replaced absolutely i mean that was that was far and away the big surprise everyone was thinking it was going to be self-driving cars first and that keeps getting pushed back year after year after year um it's it's fascinating that it seems like the knowledge intense ones are the ones that well, well, are being disrupted first. Um, and if you've got a nurse, a doctor, and a surgeon, it looks like the doctor's the one who's the most at risk at the at the moment, and then potentially the surgeon, and actually the nurse, the human touch, the the palliative care when it's needed, the understanding, the able the ability to touch someone on a human level, that very much is not going to be replaced anytime soon. And I don't think that that will go back to kind of the AGI. I think it would take a long, long time before we get anything that could just closely approximate that. Dog, be willing to be proved wrong. Oh yeah, I mean, I remember having this, you know, conversation with my auntie about probably about six years ago now, and I remember she, you know, because we were talking about technology. I remember she asked me that she she had had the conversation with someone else that was saying, you know, doctors or nurses, which one are going to again? It wasn't really AI; it was just technology, uh, you know, in general. Which one's going to get replaced? And she was saying, you oh, know, nurses. And I said, I think it'll be doctors first. I I was like, the amount of times I've seen a doctor, and it's less empathy related and more, you know, fact and analysis related. Again, 
humans are still great at analyzing and you know looking at something and maybe you know poking and prodding you know for example but it, it was more analytical whereas the role of a nurse like you said is a bit more you know be you know being empath you know having empathy being a bit kinder you know these sort of things that you know a lot harder for ai it, it is a lot more emotional and yeah like it is the knowledge based roles that are definitely being disrupted whereas the more lower paid traditionally uh, you know more physical roles are you know definitely harder because when you actually look at it the other problem with these physical roles where it's you know nursing whether even even doctors to an extent as well whether it's you know driving for example laying bricks you know electrician you know anything like that is the ramifications of getting that wrong are pretty devastating oh yeah i mean people's yeah. lives will be on the line there exactly whereas the ramifications of a piece of artwork not being quite correct uh, or you know a, you know something being summarized there's not that the ramif- it's not that bad big of a deal in the short term for most applications nobody's going to die like at worst case you might get some miss you know information or somebody's you know artistic style might be you know copyrighted like like that's it right that's pretty much as far as it goes to whereas if the wrong care is given or you know you know let's say if he was a technology or a computer you know a robot was installing electrical wire in a house if that was just not done correctly that could mean a whole family of five could be dead tomorrow oh completely yeah i think also with the with the driving question as well it's the case of where it's very hard to take a gradual approach to self-driving because it's not so much the self-driving cars which are going to have accidents it's going to be the combination of the self-driving cars with the human-driven cars and that difficulty to kind of match those two things together. Um, once everyone's on a self-driving car, every, all the cars will be talking to each other. It'll be very, it'll be a stable, predictable system. Um, but obviously, to get to that point, it's highly likely we may have to end up banning human-driven cars, and that's a whole democratic minefield that I don't think any. Western democracy is going to be able to fight. Um, so I don't know how the self-driving... I'm not an expert at all in self-driving cars, but I've always thought that's going to be the difficulty is is getting people past the point of the initial integration of self-driving. Oh, yeah. Plus, you know, just the legal side of it. Because if you look at... I've got a Tesla. I'm in the UK. And the full self-driving capabilities are nowhere near as good as they are in America. I've seen videos of how they are in America... It's, it's not really a technical limitation. You know, partly there's data and the roles are different. But for the most part, it's not a technical limitation. It's legal. Like the UK and, you know, EU doesn't allow it. And what do you do then? Like, like the, yeah. it, it's literally stopped it in its track, even though it's technically capable. Whereas partly, you know, the, you know the, there's a safety element. Then, then partly you could say, you know, maybe there's certain parties that are intro, have a vested interest that it, you know, benefits them to, you know, stop it. Whereas, you know, stopping chat GPT from summarizing text, nobody's really probably going to put laws into place that will stop that for the next 10 years. Whereas that's what they've done with self-driving. Like 
it's a number of years that UK is behind, you know, US. Oh, completely. Where I, I remember seeing that video. I think it was about two, three years ago, where they did the the fully autonomous drive all the way from LA to San Francisco, and that was with one self driven car. Um, I'm sure they've done hundreds of them now, maybe even thousands. Um, I, I'm very much. I'm not. I'm not in the self driving space, but I was thinking, wow. Uh, and yeah, that's. They haven't done that to the best of my knowledge anywhere in the UK yet, no. and I don't think they're gonna. It's going to be a bold government that takes on those vested interests here. America's definitely much more entrepreneurial, much more um, risk taking, and open to that kind of stuff. Yeah, and plus with America, because they have different states and they have different, you know, uh, you know, laws. I, I know they have their, you know, the laws that are overall in America, but then each state has their own laws. It only takes one of those states to, you know, like, uh, you know, San Francisco, California to, you know, actually do it. And they show it works. Then the, then all the other ones are like, you know, America did it. Uh, you know, it's not San Francisco did it. It's America did it. Let's start rolling it out now. Whereas if Germany does it, UK is not going to, even if they were still part of the EU, ignoring the, you know, ignore Brexit. If UK was still part of the EU, UK is not just going to suddenly jump up, jump up and say, Germany's done it. Let's immediately put it in because we're all European. It's going to be like, okay, you know, hold on, hold on. You know, we're England, they're Germany, they're France, they're Spain. You know, let them do their thing. Like they're a different country. They have a different economy. They have different, you know, a financial system. We're not 100% linked with them. So, oh yeah, and also we we we've got to have. I don't know how it works in most of Europe, but in the UK, for example, it's very hard to have different local laws to elsewhere. Whereas yes. I know, kind of in a, is it Phoenix? Is that right? Where they've got pretty much as, as most relaxed rules as possible on um on self driving. So I think you can get kind of self driving taxis now in Phoenix. Is that right? I mean, um, I don't know, but it, it, that doesn't surprise me because you know, obviously in America, there's so many different states so many different rules for those states and they obviously each state will have because the due to the size of the states like the state some of those states are bigger than like countries in the eu oh yeah so like there's only so much governing that they can do where if they just have one set of rules for all of the you know states it gets to a point where it's not a matter of okay ai is good or bad you know one state might be really cold one state might be really warm and the laws for that suit a cold state may not suit a warm state so they'll need their individual laws oh completely yeah uh so so yeah like self-driving and and that's where you need to you know where you just need to see like there's definitely been a lot of you know halting in the technical say implementation especially in the uk and over in your you know eu as well but especially in the uk and that's just legal there's nothing more to it than you know the government saying you know no we can't do it because i was reading that the uk government is very strict about self-driving that like there's certain requirements where he it it has to for it to be able to road you know drive on a certain road it has to be able to you know approach that road at a certain angle you know at a certain speed at a certain distance from the curb and i'm thinking you know, no humans doing that. <laughs> yeah. No, if you say to some human, you've got to approach you at this angle within like two, three degrees of you know error at this speed at this distance from the curb. I don't think Stig from Top Gear is going to do that. No, no. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 like it's permanently under 
the strictest driving test you could possibly imagine 24 7 yes um, i mean I, th- I think it's good because i'm a huge believer that I, I i i don't drive um i can't drive um and i look at driving i i, I probably should learn to drive eventually um, but i've always been thinking oh i'm sure self-driving is just a couple of years away Why i know a lot now? of people <laughs> that means you know yeah. say that and then they kind of just end up driving because they're like oh it's going to be a while if yeah if i hit 30 35 and i'm still saying it, i will eventually learn to drive um but it's it's one where the fatalities in driving is is, is very high it's, it's statistically way less safe than trains planes mm-hmm. um all that kind of stuff and i'm sure self-drive i'm, I'm sure autonomous driving self-driving cars will bring the fatality down Probably by an order of magnitude. I don't have any data to back that up, but that's why that's my understanding. Long term, yes, I I believe the same. There might be that intermediary period where, because either human error or the technology is quite not there, they might spike. And I feel like people that are anti self driving for whatever reason, whether they're the taxi companies, whether they just don't believe in the technology, may use that as a you know data point to be able to try and ban it but yeah long term i agree once everything's on it it's i think it's going to have a huge impact on safety i'm I'm sure i'm sure you're absolutely right because one car accident death won't make the news because it's human driving in a car happens at hundreds of times a day whereas one self-driving car death even if it's one in a million journeys that's new that's novel uh, so it will make the news. And you're absolutely right. There's going to be vested interest, taxi firms, like you say, uh, who have a vested interest in not letting this technology out the bag. Yeah. but uh, And that's the thing with statistics. They can be skewed so much. Like You could have one death last year from self-driving in the UK. If you have three deaths this year, uh, you, instead of saying there's only two extra people have died, even though... 10 million new self-driving cars are on the road, they could, you know, put the article as three times as many deaths have occurred from self-driving vehicles as last year. That sounds pretty bad. If you think oh, yeah. that way, three times as much, or there's an increase of 200% extra. Whereas when you look at it, you'd be like, okay, there's been a lot more new driving, you know, new self-driving vehicles, but only two extra deaths relative to the amount of people that pass the test and then have an accident or, you know, uh, that lead to a death. Whereas, again, it's that thing. People will believe what they, you know, see. They won't say, okay, 2 plus 2 does not equal 5. They'll just be like, okay, I've been told that it equals 5. Uh, I, I guess it does. Yeah. It's, uh, it's people will skew the statistics. People will fight tooth and nail on this. I'm sure it'll happen in Gen AI as much as it happens with self-driving. But, um, oh, 100%. It's, uh, it's... It just has that extra layer of complexity to all these things, and I'm sure there's going to be. When you ask that question about what's in the next five to ten year horizon for Serving Mind, I'm sure dealing with things like this is going to be a big issue for not just Serving Mind, but for every AI company um, dealing with the regulatory landscape. Have you sat in a like it'd be mainly Tesla, I guess, in the, you know this country, a self-driving vehicle, as much as it can be self-driving in this country, and then had it on self-driving mode. No, I, I would absolutely love to, but uh, no, I've never had the opportunity. I mean, it's again, like, like I say, I've got a Tesla Model Y, and we've got the full self-driving, you know, package. You know, still missing some features because obviously, you know, in the UK, and then they swapped over to Tesla Vision instead of 
the you know the ultrasonic you know the radar sensors but it's fantastic like on the motorway or an a road that's predominantly what i use i just whack it into self driving and i'm just you know sitting there and just making sure everything's all right that's so cool yeah no i think that's i i would i'd love to experience that <laughs> are you london based uh yeah i'm based up in uh, finchy road Okay, so yeah, in London, you probably wouldn't, you know, especially central London, you probably wouldn't get to use it too much. Right. Yeah, no, I can imagine. I imagine that's probably the the, the worst kind of like uh, environment for it as well with pedestrians, literally. I mean, I'm, I'm guilty of it myself being a pedestrian, but not looking each way, etc. And that's going to really test those systems to the max. Yeah, I mean, forget the pedestrians, the other drivers. Yes. <laughs> Every yeah. time I go, because again, I don't, I lived in London for a year, but I wasn't a driver at the time. Actually, I mean, I had a license, but I, I didn't have a car. I just took the underground. But I've been to London, especially after getting married, you know, you know, we go for a weekend or, you know, a day out. And obviously when I'm driving, I'm having to deal with the London driver. I'm like, how are they driving? It's like yeah. the animals have just escaped the zoo. <laughs> I'm like, like, how, like, I was like, what's this taxi driver doing? I've, you know, the the lights have gone for half a second and he's already beeping and overtaking and mounting the curb as if it's the end of the world. No, I, I, this is this is exactly why I've been put off from learning to drive because <laughs> I'd have to learn in London and um, honestly, I don't think you pay me to do it. No, yeah, I, I can understand. Like in London, and plus the infrastructure's there that you don't really need to. Like with the underground and the trains and even the buses as well, if you want to go down that route. And then the the amount of bicycle lanes if you're into biking as well and the accessibility of you know you know renting a bike is so prevalent that there's so many alternatives that you could and it's actually sometimes quicker you know obviously i lived in london sometimes it's just quicker just to grab the underground than it is to you know gain a car find parking pay for parking etc etc oh i'm sure it would be yeah i mean i i've got i've got by for all my life just literally the tube and the bus uh i'll there's lots of things which London's not great on, but public transport, it is pretty darn good. Oh, yeah, you know, 100%. And I think overall UK in general has a good grasp on public transport compared to some other countries. Uh, and the accessibility of it from a financial perspective, like it's it's pretty accessible. Oh, yeah. I mean, even I, I go to America a couple of times and I, I grew up there actually when I was a kid. And they've got public transport. You've got to have a car. There's just no public transport, even, even New York, whereas good public transport very good by american standards it's still got nothing on london oh yeah like uk has done a great job at that i feel like it's one of those areas of the uk that gets ignored you know when the uk is being talked about it i mean people talk about the nhs is definitely a big one the uh yeah i feel like that's the main one and the fact that education is free up to university and before that it's pretty it's relatively decent you know for what it is i'd say i think there's definitely huge problems uh, you know definitely if you look at the original you know prussian education system and where the modern education system is derived from but i think that's a less of a uk issue and that's more of a worldwide issue but overall i think it's pretty decent considering it's free and accessible by by anyone oh completely it's it's there's i'll be the first to moan about a lot of things about the uk but education healthcare the fact that it's free at the point of access and is as good as it is uh already leaps and bounds ahead of so many other countries uh, i always compare to america and just think about the healthcare there and healthcare and public transport alone are a good reason to be thankful to live in the uk not the usa oh yeah like it's crazy that i've seen some of the healthcare bills over there and like how drastically different it is from 
one, let's say, hospital to a hospital that's 10 minutes down the road. Because it's not even like there's a consistent pricing where if you know you're going to go in for this, it's going to cost roughly this. So you're like, okay, do I go in or not? Like, it could be a difference of hundreds and tens of thousands. It, that's just insane. Yeah, and I, I, I remember hearing a couple of horror stories about kind of being pregnant and coming out and being yes, charged. Yeah, the ones I've been hearing yeah. about, yeah. Yeah, it, it, it is crazy, because especially considering, you know, I've had, you know, a child, you know, last year, and then I've got another child on the way as well. Congratulations. Thank you very much. And, and like, obviously in the UK, you, you don't have to think about the cost of birth. Like, obviously, you've got to buy stuff for the child, but you have to do buy, you know, do that in any country. But then, like, think you hear about people just getting, like, bill with 10000 like $100,000, and they was given jack all or and be, sometimes they'll like I've I've heard uh you know horror stories where they they'll say you know if you if you want to hold your baby after birth it'll cost you extra this much. No and way like, that is outrageous. <laughs> like, I've heard about that or like I think I even heard like if you want the baby wrapped in a towel but you need it but they need to be wrapped in a towel so they're basically forcing the charge on you. That I mean that doesn't surprise me but that is absolutely outrageous. Can't get yeah, it's that. That, it, it, at that point any same person, whether you're a politician or just a you know a, a civilian in society, needs to look at it and be like, "That's just money grab. Like that is just pure capitalist money grabbing." At that point, okay. Do, do you um, have you lived out in the states yourself? Is that something you've no? Come across, I, I, I've no? never li- I, I've never been in America. I do want to visit there, you know, on holiday, but I've never been. But again, I've seen stuff on the news. I've researched it, and you know, I have a good grasp of how the system works over there. Mm, yeah, no, it's very, it's just, it, they say it's, um, what is it? It's a, it's a, it's two countries separated by a common language, but that is definitely kind of the UK versus the USA. Mm, oh yeah, 100%. So, you know, as we're, you know, approaching the end of, you know, our podcast today, one thing that I always do is have a bunch of fun questions to, you know, lighten the mood, you know, before we wrap up, you know, the rapid fire. Are you ready for them, Ran? Absolutely. Let's go for it. Okay, so the first one, uh, this will be interesting because you're already running your own company. Would you rather run a 10-person company or a 1,000-person company and why? And like a follow-up question, because I don't think we really covered this, how big is SurveyMind? Like how many people do you have, including yourself? And are you guys bootstrapped or have you been funded? Yep, so uh, on that, that kind of the first question, 10 versus 1,000, um, my, my, my former company, Cavendish, um, we we got to a team of about 40 tutors and an admin team of four of us. Uh, and that was really good fun. That was peak pandemic. Um, uh, had a very kind of, everyone, everything was remote uh, because of the pandemic. Uh, but we got a nice kind of environment together. Had a fantastic admin team. Every single one of those tutors was great. I enjoyed working with them. And we also got very lucky with some lovely clients as well. Um, so I really enjoyed that. Um I've never had the experience of running a 1,000 person company. I would love to have it one day. Um, so I'd have to say that just just purely because it's an experience I haven't had and I'd love to experience it. Yeah. Um, and then on SurveyMind, we, we're, we're bootstrapped at the moment, but looking, like I said, to do our first funding at some point in 2024. Uh, and it's a small team of four at the moment, uh, my co-founder, Alex, myself, and then we have some uh, specialist interns, actually four or five, because it depends on which interns are around, um, but a couple of specialists working here and there. Um, and we're looking to expand once we get some funding. Okay. And, you know, would you rather have £5 million up front or half a million a year for the rest of your life and why? Ooh. Um, 
I, don't, I mean, I've got to say, five million out front versus half a million rest of the life. It's got to be. I'm only 28, so I've got to say half a million a year and hope that I live longer than 10 years um, <laughs> because I don't trust myself to be able to invest 5 million and get better than a 10% return. So I'm going to go with that option. Um, I mean, yeah, I, I, I always think that... I, not, not that I was in this. I, I've seen the studies which say that money makes you happy up to a point and then after that does nothing. And I think that point, most of the studies would agree is once you can comfortably cover the necessities and get out of debt. And I would say possibly the one thing above that in the UK is be enough to afford an own home. Um, if yes. I can get to that level, everything Obviously above that, that is just Especially, crazy. you know, being in London, trying to afford a home in London. Like UK in general is difficult, but in London, like getting more than like a cardboard box. Oh yeah, <laughs> no, impossible. I know it's it's crazy. Like so some of the price. Sometimes when I you know have a look just out of curiosity, you know the prices of stuff, and I'm like half a million for that. I'm like it's a shoe closet. Yep. No, I, I we I was uh, looking at houses um, uh, about a year and a half ago, and um, a lot of them like a half million gets you a loft conversion, a roof conversion, one one floor, one bed, one bath, yeah. or a studio or something. Studio, yeah. yeah. Yes, yeah, so if it's a little nearer the station or a, a little nearer central. Again, we're not talking central. We're talking about a little nearer. Oh, yeah, this was zone free. Like, um, yeah. that's a, for context for non-London listeners, that's quite far out. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it is pretty crazy. But those are the prices. And I think you can say with New York, New York's crazy as well. Tokyo's crazy. I mean, Manchester and Birmingham are getting pretty crazy for the prices as well. Now. That's what I've heard, yeah. Yeah, I mean, because uh, I'm originally from the West Midlands in, you know, Dudley, you know, West Bromwich, Wolverhampton areas. So, you know, Birmingham was always nearby and that was the thing that I used to always compare it to. And Birmingham was, you know, it was a bit more expensive, but it was never London prices. And now you're looking at it and you're just like, it's like, okay, you might not be a million, but if you're, you know, half a million or 600 grand for something, like the extra 400 grand almost makes no difference. <laughs> like, yeah. it, it, it pretty much puts most people out of being able to afford it. So you might as well just whack it up to the million. Like it, it, it's that's the point that it's getting to that, you know, so many places are so unaffordable and in Manchester as well. Oh yeah. No, it's, I, I, I'm my friends, my entire generation, my cohort. I, it's the only people I know who've been able to get there. have had a lot of help or they've got very, very lucky. Um, uh, or in some unfortunate situations where it's been an inheritance or things like that, um, it's very, very hard. I don't know anyone who's managed to do it entirely off their own bat in London. I know people who've done it entirely off their I'm originally from Kent, in uh, Canterbury area. I know people who've done it on their own around there. Um, but in London, I don't know anyone who's done it off their own bat. Yeah, it, it is extremely difficult, unless you do have some really high-paying job. Like, uh, And mm. when I'm talking about high-paying, I'm talking well over 100k even well over 200k like yeah because once you factor everything in once especially with a bit of lifestyle inflation as well and if you do want to have a bit of fun in london it's it's so expensive and obviously you know the rent will like rent will just you know kill you initially and then you find it you know difficult to save so yeah it is very difficult i mean uk in general it's it's you know what you can get now versus just 20 or even just 10 years ago yeah, it's, it's it's a different different world. Oh yes, and I feel like that's not something that's gonna you know 
even though a lot of people are think feel like there's gonna be a reset, I don't think there's gonna be a permanent reset. Um, have you seen over the last few years banks are, have been discussing a multi generational mortgage package? That's no, I haven't seen that, but I can I can I can imagine it, and that's just that's that's really sad. <laughs> I know. No other word for it. They're talking about like 50, 60 year, you know, mortgages where, you know, obviously usually you have it for like 25 to 35 years typically for residential. And then, you know, the idea is if you get it when you're, let's say, 30, by the time you've retired at about, what's the retirement age is 67 now. So by the time you're mid 60s, you've paid it off. And then, you know, you take your pension if you if you think the pension is going to pay out, et cetera, et cetera. That's a conversation for, you know, a different day. But, you know, that's how it would work. But they're talking about multi-generational. This, I, I, when I heard that, I was like, there's so many problems with that. Ignoring the, I say, moral and ethical side of it and just happiness. The thing is, when you go and get a mortgage, they do so many checks on you. You know, affordability, you know, your credit history. If you say, like, if they're going to say that, okay, you... We're going to give you a 60-year package. You're 35. We know you're probably only going to do about 30 years worth more of work, maybe a bit more. The rest is going to be on your kid. You don't know how that kid's going to end up. You don't know if that kid's going to be capable of work physically, mentally, if they're going to get a high-paying job, capable of that mortgage, if they're going to want to live in that house. You know, all of these factors, they're just such an unknown compared to how many checks they actually do on an individual, it just feels like people just have not thought that through. That no, not at all. That that seems like um it's fraught with so many issues. Yeah. No, I can't I can't I can't I really hope that doesn't catch on. No, I think yeah. I think in again I don't I don't know if it's a multi generation. I think it's a super long. I think Japan did introduce a forty year mortgage. Uh, again, mm. that's already long. But again, if you get it at the age of twenty-five, you're just sixty-five when you when it wraps up. So it's still within the realm of your working life. Yeah, but you have so to get it early, though. Yeah. That that makes yeah. more sense, I suppose. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So, what's your favorite board game, movie, and video game? Ooh, uh, board game. Gotta say, either Monopoly or Risk. Uh, movie. <sighs> I'm going to be a bit cliche and say Shawshank Redemption. I just love it. Um, maybe The Godfather, again, that's equally cliche, but I do just love both of those movies. Um, and video game, Age of Empires 2. Ooh, I have, it's been a while since I've played Age of Empires. I mean, they had a new one, didn't they? Age of Empires 4, is it? They did, and I'll tell you what, it, it's not bad at all, but it's... I, I think Age of Empires 2 is the most perfectly balanced game and like the fact that it's still got such a big following 25 years to 23 24 years now since it first came out i mean it's still got tens of thousands of players regularly uh, it's just such a well balanced game um it's i mean obviously the graphics are now miles out of date but um age of empires 4 it was a nice update on age of empires 2 it kept a lot of the character uh, and it's got a big following in its own right. Um, but for me, on the occasions where I will game, I will still, to this day, just go back to Age of Empires 2. Yeah, I remember playing Age of Empires, you know, 1 and 2, you know, when I was a kid. But like I said, number 2, it was one of those ones that just knocked it out the park, especially for, you know, strategy games. And I remember having so much fun, you know, just loading up a new map and, you know, having it fresh and just playing that for two or three hours. 
you know, you know, getting resources, you know, protecting, you know, my little camp. And uh, I mean, it's been a while since I thought about Age of Empires, but I, I think I'm gonna, you know, allocate a bit of time, hopefully in the next over the next few months, and you know, play some Age of Empires. I've got a Steam Deck. I'm gonna see how well it works on, you know, Steam Deck, and because I might be a way of, you know, being able to play without the. I, I don't know if you've played a steam you know played with a steam deck before but, no i haven't no i've just got my normal pc which i use uh, i mean i'm loving these not portable consoles like the switch but portable systems like the playstation portal and the steam deck where you're paying playing a more traditionally you know a traditional library because i'm able to i can sit with my family and not be in a different room where i'm on my pc or be on the ps5 and hog the tv I can yeah. sit there, literally just have the important one, and still have family time. And uh, definitely, some of these systems have been great for you know dads and adults. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like that's what they were made for, not kids. Oh no, I can imagine. I mean, that's I, a lot of these kind of. Um, there's a, there's a big renaissance actually now, kind of for people looking at the older games, the kind of the uh, the ones from the nineties and the early noughties. And anything which increases access to that, I think, is great because to me, that was when I was kind of late kid early teen that was kind of my era of gaming i loved it so the fact that a lot of these games are coming back still have big followings half-life 2 is one which still has a big following i still play oh yes i'm still Um, waiting for the next one i think i think we're all waiting (laughs) we've all been waiting for a long time (laughs) was it too far because 2004 is when half-life 2 came out but episode 2 was that 07 or 08 oh it was it was around then yeah it's been 50 i i was still in high school and yeah. I remember thinking uh, it'll be by the time I get into college, episode three will probably come out. Then university went by, and then it's been ten years since I. No, it'll be ten years next year since I graduated. You know, I've you know gone through different you know ups ups and downs in my career. You know, I've, I've got a house since then. You know, I've got you know the second kid on the way. Got married. Like, there's so many things that have happened. I'm like, I'm still waiting for the next. Obviously, excluding Alex, Half Life Alex, which was great, but I feel like that was not the main. Like, it wasn't a main. Yeah, I, I haven't played that, but um, it, it's you, really need good, v, you need VR for that, don't you? Is that right? Or do yes, you not need you do. VR? I mean, yeah. there are some mods where you can play without VR, but it's it's in VR where it shines because it's a VR. Yeah. Game. In all fairness, if you have a gaming PC and if you already have a VR headset or you think about getting it, it is one of the best experiences that you can, you know, enjoy outside of being a Half-Life fan. It's amazing. But okay. again, I want a Half-Life game. Yeah, same. I mean, I feel like you you probably have a lot of similar gaming tastes to me, especially, you know, the old classic games. You mentioned Half-Life 2, Age of Empires, uh, Age of Empires as well. Did you ever play a game called Black and White back in the day? I did. Uh, Black and White 2. Is that the, the you got One the and two, gods yes. and stuff? Yeah. Yes. Like be uh, good, be evil, be god, be a god. Yes, that yeah. I had black and white too. That I had definitely. Uh, they're they're kind of big animals. The gods, is that yes, right? yes, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah, that was I, a good I one. Playing that. I, I mean, I mean, that's another franchise. I wish they, you know, would bring back. Uh, when you play Age of Empires two, out of curiosity, do you play the original or do you play like the their HD remastered version? I do the uh, yeah the HD remaster. I don't do the kind of the new. I mean, it's, it's quite heavily modded these days. You've got different extra civilizations that didn't exist in the old game and stuff like that. Um, but I, I play the HD version of the original game. Though. 
Okay, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, I haven't played the HD version. Uh, I've only played, you know, the original, original. Like, how how much of an upgrade is the graphics for from number two to the HD version? Um, it's it's pretty decent, I would say. I've I haven't I haven't played the original original graphics of AOE two for a long time, but when they did the remaster of the AOE one, uh, they brought it out so that it was very easy to swap between the HD version and the original version. Um, mm. so that's the ninety seven one, um, and that when you, when you can easily swap between the two, massive difference. Like that, that's a big upgrade. I mean, I'll, I'll definitely check it out, and and maybe that one on you know the Steam Deck, and that's been another great thing about consoles like the Steam Deck is games that are like 10, 15, 20 years old that on your big thirty four or like forty nine inch monitor just don't look good anymore. They look fine on that small screen, and you mm. can take it with you. Oh, absolutely, yeah, and that's a big. I can imagine that being a big advantage. Yeah, uh, and it means, especially games from about 10 years ago, you can max them out. They still look decent today, you know, like Max Payne 3, you know, like the GTA 5, you know, you know that sort of era, and you can run them really well, and they still look good because they're on a small screen. Mm. Yeah, I've got quite a big monitor on my desktop, and that's where I do most of the gaming when I do game, but um, I think for a lot of the old ones, it could work perfectly well on a 15-inch, oh, yeah. 13-inch screen. So... What video game are you looking for? I know you say you don't really play many games outside of some classics, but are there any video games you're looking forward to, whether or not you think you'll get around to playing them? Uh, so I do have to, because I because I do enjoy games, that's a thing, I can easily spend a lot of time doing it, so I try and prevent myself from doing it. Um, I got quite big into City Skylines. I don't know if that's okay, something yeah. you've come across. Uh, and yes, they did City Skylines too, and that's I haven't tried it yet, but it got absolutely panned, which is a shame because... The thing which made City Skylines one so good is the Sim City reboot in twenty thirteen was awful. <laughs> it was, uh, I so, remember that. Yeah. And the City Skylines was that uh, now, uh, am I right or wrong? Did, did City Skylines start off as a mod initially? Uh it, it was a weird kind of it was a it, it was a, I think it's a Finnish studio, um and they had a kind of like a, a very niche game which was a traffic simulator. Um, which had kind of city building as mm. like a as like an add-on to the traffic simulator, uh, and then SimCity came out was awful, and so their publisher said, "Right, you guys, developers, you've got this base game, turn it into a city sim rather than a traffic sim, and we'll release it as soon as possible." And in the space of about I think it was about fifteen months, they put together a fantastic game, very well balanced. Um, good graphics uh and the entire city sim community pretty much moved entirely away from sim city yes. city skylines um and then they've essentially done everything that sim city did wrong with the sim city release for the city skyline 2 release <laughs> um i mean we're talking broken sims broken game dynamics um very very pared back in terms of clearly what they're doing is they're trying to get a lot of the dlc out later so they've paired it back quite a lot um and for a guy like me who dips in and out of games doesn't play regularly i'll play maybe once every other month or so um i'm not going to spend 50 pounds for a game i touch once a month unless it's really really good and then if, if, if it's really really good i'll do it and i'll support the developers particularly a small indie studio like them um but only if it's a finished product basically yeah uh, and that's definitely a huge problem with the gaming industry today is 
so many products that are released that are unfinished that have day one updates sometimes those updates can be like 20 30 50 like 100 gigabytes and it's insane because not everyone got gigabit you know ethernet you know uh, internet and yeah like with all the dlc in our purchases now with you know mobile there's definitely a lot of you know bad side to the gaming industry that wasn't there 15 years ago 10 15 years ago Mm. i think ea is one which is kind of the way they implemented dlc everyone aped them and um i mean it's just now that's that is their model for all their big titles for fifa for madden for the sims it's all about can you turn gamers into subscribers um and i feel like most studios have gone to that i feel like they've seen what ea did and even though they had a lot of backlash they still made a shit ton of money and it was like okay you know yeah i might you know be hated but at least i'm hated on a big nice you know cushion of money so it's like uh, whatever exactly and i think like kind of like you said earlier like people are going to have to adapt or they're going to get left behind i do i do feel sorry for the studios because that's how you make money on a game these days and yes it's i would love for it not to be i, I think the open source gaming community is very good i'm, I'm not big in it at all like I said, i'm not as much of a gamer as i was when i was a kid um but i know that there's a lot of good kind of games which are open source small developers small indie developers and they do their best to fight it um, and I've got a lot of respect for them. Oh yeah, uh, but I, I do hope that we do get you know non-multiplayer, more single-player experiences, you know, more finished products, and just less money, you know, driven throughout the game. I'm happy to pay a bit more up front, um, but again, there's there's so much so much competition that people don't want to buy it and spend that money unless it's so AAA. And at that point, you almost need to spend nine figures anyway, or eight figures definitely for a 3D AAA title. And you, you know, you see why companies and studios do push a lot of, you know, in-app purchases and DLC that they normally wouldn't have because otherwise it's just not financially feasible. Or they just go to smaller mobile games. And we have, as a result, got a lot of smaller indie games. Uh, you know, they're on a smaller budget, smaller scale, and instead of 50, 60 quid, they might charge you £10, for example, and it's a nice experience in itself. So even though the industry has kind of gone downhill from a certain perspective, it's actually brought to us a lot of games that probably wouldn't have occurred in yeah. the 15, 20 year ago model. That's, I think that's a good way of looking at it. Um, and um, also, like I say, I'm happy to pay as as much as needed if it's a finished product with like the full content there for the full game experience and it doesn't have lots of bugs what annoys me is if it's paired back and it has bugs and it's full price <laughs> yes yeah. um so final question two-parter does money buy you happiness and what does a good life mean to you um yes yeah, so for, for the money buys happiness I'd, I'd go back to kind of what i said earlier which is i i do think what those studies say is exactly right that it helps massively up to a point and that point is when you don't have to worry about the daily necessities don't have to worry about debt um and you can live in a house and not worry about being kicked out of it i think after that point i I can see situations where it will really help if you have a sick child and you can afford to make that sick child's life better that would be a case of money genuinely 
buying happiness out of an otherwise very difficult situation. Um, I think if you love travel and you can afford to fund a life a life of travel, that's great. But it's not the money there which is helping. It's the what you're doing with the money which affords you the happiness. Uh, I don't think money in its own right is a good thing to, to chase after. Um, and I think a good life is a life where you're doing productive work, learning something every day, helping out the rest of society, um, and you wake up feeling like you're fulfilling that mission. Okay, love that. And yeah, I mean, I I, I agree. You know, with what you said about you know the money, you know, you know the money side of things, and like you know, we, we you know with the travel, and obviously the key point to note there, money in itself isn't you know what you might want but the money is the catalyst that might get things going and started yeah because you might like traveling and you might like going and staying at this place and experiencing this you know experiencing in different countries but without the money you can't do it exactly yeah but yeah, uh, uh, you know, I just want to thank you for coming on to FireDev today. It was great talking about AI, you know, about survey mind as well, and you know what you're doing. So yeah, I just want to you know, say thank you for coming on today, Ran. No, thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure, and um, yeah, it's been really, really exciting. And I want to thank everyone else for listening to this episode of FireDev. I'll see you in next week's episode of FireDev. And also check out Rand's company, SurveyMind. And we'll, what's the website, Rand? Uh, it's surveymind.io. Surveymind.io. So check that out. And hopefully we see some exciting things over the next few years, especially with the way AI is going. I'm sure it'll be different in three to four years compared to how it is today. Hopefully. Yeah. See you, everyone. Bye-bye.